1: Welcome back to HerdTel. Okay, he's back. He's been here before. He's written all over the place. Star Tribune, Wall Street Journal, one of those I still haven't got for some reason. Uh, Yahoo News, recent graduate of Minnesota, but we're not going to hold that against him. Golden Gophers are welcome here for this day and this day only. We'll see how the football season goes before we go further. that. he's working on those LSATs, trying to get more knowledge jammed in there. He's a good guy. We're glad to have him back. I'm going to talk a little guns today. Benjamin Ianian, welcome back, my friend.
3: Andrew, thanks for having me back. I'm glad to be here.
1: Well, we'll have to quit talking to you once you become a lawyer, because then you're one of the—I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We, <laughs> no. have, we have lawyers on all the time. We just treat them a little differently. <laughs> um, Congratulations on getting school done. Good to have you back. You've got a piece out. You were writing in Spectator. Let's start big picture. You know what? Let's do it this way. Let's actually go big picture and then zoom in on this, because I think the perspective is really, really important here. I think one of the biggest problems with gun control and gun rights both, both sides of this argument is, When We we only talk about it when there's an event, usually a tragic event or a legislative event. We had them back-to-back in this case. That's the only time people want to talk about these. And we never string them together, and we never look at it as a big-picture thing, and we never look at it linearly instead of just as a sequence of things. I think that's a big problem because I think a lot of the issues with this is we want to just deal with them in the individual things with whatever our priors were, and we lose perspective on this. Do you think that's a fair way to kind of frame this all up?
3: I think that's a completely fair way to frame the discussion. I think that it is a problem that we seem to talk about this issue so often whenever in a, a, a terrible tragedy occurs. And then if there's a lull where there isn't a big event in the news cycle, then the discussion kind of goes to the back burner and people don't talk about it as much. And so we we're always discussing this issue when passions and tensions are the highest. Um you know people's opinions can change um from times of you know passion and fervor to when they're you know more calm and, and thinking about certain issues more collectively. And so I do think that it's important that You know, we talk about the issues of gun violence constantly um, because it it is an issue in the United States that is worth our attention and our discussion. Um, But I agree with you. a, A large problem is that we only talk about it when there is a major event in the news cycle.
1: And the other side of that, of course, is is that even though we have, let's just say, mass shootings, Every single one of them have unique aspects. They have unique uh, precursors. They have unique individuals involved in them. Thank God. Usually it's as far as I know of mass shootings, it's usually a one and done for the perpetrators for a variety of reasons. That's another part of this perspective thing is that we're trying to solve a problem that is a little bit different every single time, right?
3: Yeah. Every mass shooting is different. You can't draw, you know, consistencies with each event and At the end of the day, as much as it is a huge problem, I don't want to downplay, you know, mass shootings, active shooters, all this is a huge problem in the United States, Um, but the events are so, you know, rare in the sense of, you know, compared to, you know, gun violence more generally, or, you know, people wanting to go drive their cars, like people get in their cars way more often than we see an active shooter. And what I'm trying to illustrate with that is that we don't have a ton of data points. Um, Because mass shootings and active shooters are so rare, it's hard to draw causal conclusions about what leads to these events occurring or, you know, what can we do to stop it? Um, Because at the end of the day, when you don't have a large set of data points, you're not going to be able to draw, you know, easy conclusions about what is causing these events to happen.
1: Yeah, Benjamin Ianian joining us. Okay, let me give you the argument back to that. Uh, Folks that are for more gun control are going to say, well, of course, silly, the common denominator is the gun. So if we just get rid of the gun, then all the rest of that equation falls apart. What's the answer to that? Because that's what we hear a lot. That's what folks say. Well, the gun is the common denominator. So let's do something about the gun. What's your answer for that?
3: Well, I have a a few answers to that argument. For one, you know, people who argue stricter gun laws, you know, will eradicate this issue. I would just point to, you know, um, the gun violence archive data, actually. And if you go to worldpopulationreview.com, they have listed um, every state and how many mass shootings they had between 2013 and 2019. And if we look at it at a per capita basis, so if we control for population size in these states, you know, states like New York, Illinois, and California, who have the strictest gun laws in the nation, they have had on a per capita basis, more mass shootings than states like Texas, New Hampshire, and Wyoming, who nu- notoriously have really relaxed gun laws. And so then if the idea is, well, let's find a way to you know, ban guns completely for one, I would argue against that for our own personal safety and and liberties, because we've seen throughout history, whether it was Nazi Germany, we saw in the um, Ottoman empire, um, the Turks, um, carrying out a genocide against Armenians. Um, and then we've seen, um, racist lawmakers in the history of the United States trying to prevent black Americans from obtaining firearms, you know, obtain, um, banning guns would put us all at risk to government tyranny and oppression Um, but then i also don't even think it is possible to ban guns people love to point to australia australia had a you know a buyback program um for their guns but estimations are that only uh 20 of people actually complied with that buyback and authorities have admitted that there is a large um, black market for guns in Australia, where even organized crime organizations are able to get fully automatic weapons. And so the idea is if there is a supply of a good and there's enough demand, no matter how much, how many laws we try to use to restrict the circulation of that good, we're just going to drive it circulation underground. We see that with drugs in the United States. You know, we've had a war on drugs, there's plenty of drugs circulating on the black market. We saw that with alcohol during the prohibition era where per capita consumption of hard liquor actually rose during prohibition. And so I think that we're living in somewhat of a fantasy world if we believe we can just get rid of guns or stricter gun laws would eradicate this issue because we have plenty of reason to doubt that would be
1: the case. Yeah, Benjamin Iranian joining us. Now, here, here's the crux of the piece you wrote in The Spectator, though, is that the good guy with the gun, part of it's narrative. There's some truth to it. And to be fair, this is a very small percentage. This doesn't happen that much. However, here's where I think we need to go back to the wider perspective before we delve into the specific examples you give. People are starting to see. We are seeing minority groups go start buying guns more and more. We're seeing women is an exploding segment of gun owners in America. People that are vulnerable and or feel themselves to be vulnerable are wanting to arm themselves. That did not happen in a vacuum. That happened in a sequence. And when they see the issues with law enforcement and they see the issues with law enforcement response to things like shootings and they see things with societal responses. They don't feel safe and they want to exercise their right to self-defense. I think that's an important context before you go, because I think there's a habit of going, well, these are cowboys or these are renegades or these are people just running around shooting guns. I think this is a small percentage, but I think we're going to see more of it because the numbers don't lie. Gun ownership's going up, right?
3: Absolutely. Gun ownership's going up. And in states where, you know we see the relaxing of licensing requirements for carry permits we see applications going through the roof last time i checked in maryland their um, concealed carry permit applications were rising at a rate of you know 700% at a 700% increase in permit applications at the time i wrote the spectator article and so yeah people are seeing what's going on with law enforcement we saw in uvalde an inexcusable law enforcement response to a school shooting in Parkland, Florida in 2018, we saw a officer hide um, when there was a school shooter. And so people are arming themselves because they believe in their right to self-defense. They see that we are seeing active shooters um, across the country. It seems that almost weekly or biweekly, there's a new new story of active shooters. And we see law enforcement not always acting in the ways that they ought to. And so people are now taking seriously their right to self-defense, and as a result, they're arming themselves
1: benjamin ianian joining us on Hertel. tell we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to talk about a couple of the specific instances with good guys with guns or good samaritans with guns what can we apply also what we can apply because that's not going to be scalable in every situation tough topic again gun control second amendment rights the eternal struggle between the two benjamin ianian's helping us sort it out on Hertel, and we'll continue with him right after this Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. Benjamin Ianian's back on the program. We're talking a little bit. Gun control versus Second Amendment and the Good Samaritan narrative. It's fair to call it a narrative, isn't it? Because it, it seems to be more narrative than it actually happens. You actually did the research on this. When it does happen, what's some of the takeaways that you found? What's some of the common threads? It is, again, it is rare. It's not scalable to every single situation. But when it does happen, what's some of the common threads you're seeing when you wrote about it?
3: Yeah, so first, let me give an idea and a contextualization of how rare this actually is. And, you know, earlier in our discussion, I said that, you know, active shooter events are incredibly rare, which makes it hard to draw conclusions from them. And so from 2000 to 2021, um, according to Texas State University data, there were 464 active shooter events in the United States, which is defined as when there's an individual Or multiple individuals attempting to kill or are killing multiple unrelated people in a public place. This is what we tend to think of when we're talking about you know tragic mass shooting events. And so there were 464 from 2000 to 2021, and in 24 of them, the shooter was stopped by um, a legally armed bystander before the police actually arrived. And so the one that I focused on in my op-ed for the American Spectator was in Greenwood, Indiana. We saw an individual bring a handful of firearms and about a hundred rounds of ammunition into a mall and opened fire in a food court. And a legally armed bystander, a 22 year old, had a, his pistol on him and was able to neutralize the shooter within, I believe it was 15 seconds. And then in West Virginia in 2000, or just a couple months ago in 2022 in May, um, an individual, Stopped an active shooter that opened fire on a graduation uh, or birthday celebration type party. They were able to stop the active shooter before the shooter could injure a single person. And so it is a narrative that, you know, good guys with guns stop bad guys with guns because it's not like this happens anywhere near most of the time there is an active shooter. Um, But one thing that's important for context in that is that. In many states, it was incredibly hard to get a concealed carry permit, Um, really up until recently when the Supreme Court struck down a New York firearms regulation. Um, It was incredibly hard in plenty of states. And as we see laws changing, we see more individuals being able to carry arms, and hopefully they'll be able to play a role in stopping these active shooters because an individual who wants to go do harm, to a random group of individuals. They don't care about the law. They don't care if they can legally own a gun. They don't care if they can legally carry that gun. If they're determined to cause harm, they bring those firearms wherever they're going. And so what you see is that law-abiding individuals can make us safer because if they are armed and they know what they're doing and they're educated on carrying on how to carry a firearm responsibly, they can stop an active shooter before police arrive on scene. And now there are risks involved because if you have two people shooting and the police show up, they might not know which one is the active shooter. And we've seen that go wrong um, in the past. At the end of the day, there are risks involved whenever there is a dangerous active shooter event. And, I, and it was my opinion in my piece that we are safer at the end of the day when law-abiding citizens are carrying concealed firearms because they can act quickly instead of having to wait for police officers to arrive on scene if they aren't already.
1: Yeah. Now, here we go. We're going to go to the devil's advocate argument again. And it is a fair argument to make is like you have armed citizenry, unlike the police who have standards to carry their firearm. They have to be qualified. They have to train on it. And. Um, Setting aside the part of a police response not being what it should be, sometimes they we know what they are at least on paper capable and expected to do. You do not have that with the citizenry, especially when fifty states can have theoretically fifty different gun uh, laws. Some of them may have certain requirements for concealed carry. Some of them may not. Some of them may have open carry with no uh, no standards whatsoever. It's going to vary that part of this is not going to change. We have a Supreme Court that is very favorable to gun rights right now, so I would suspect those court cases are going to trend that way, at least for the foreseeable future. The argument is you don't know whether that good guy with the gun actually knows what he's doing or not. Again, the sample size you have, we have some success. There's also a potential for tragedy here, yes?
3: There's absolutely a potential for tragedy. I think that That is a completely fair counter argument that, you know, we don't necessarily know whether or not the good guy with a gun knows what they're doing to any similar degree that a police officer does. I think that that is a fair, you know, pushback. But what I would argue is that for the most part, you know, people who go, they purchase a firearm or there are firearms, you know, in their family and they've been taught how to shoot. I think that the the one issue is these people are viewed as, you know, gunslingers that have no idea what they're doing. A lot of individuals who own firearms are very dedicated to understanding firearms. They have an interest in firearms. They enjoy going to the gun range. And so I don't think it's a fair characterization of individuals who tend to carry firearms um, or individuals who go through the concealed carry permit process. Um, I don't think it's fair to characterize them as gunslingers, which I feel a lot of individuals in the media do these days. Um, But on top of that, there are states, 25 of them to be exact, that have constitutional carry, which says that if you do not, uh, or if you are legally able to own a firearm, a handgun, then you can legally carry it in public without um, going through any permit process. And there are obviously dangers associated with that. I mean, imagine if I'm 18 years old, uh, well, 21 for a handgun, imagine I'm 21 years old, I purchase a pistol, I don't know the first thing about it, and all of a sudden I'm carrying it. There are obviously going to be dangers associated with that. Um, There are other states who have incredibly strict um, licensing processes. They now just have to be objective. Where they require live fire training, they require classroom training, and they require individuals to complete a test um, administered usually by a DOJ certified instructor um, to be able to carry a concealed firearm. I think that at the end of the day, those types of objective criteria, if we require those for individuals um, to be able to carry a concealed weapon, I think that that would be able to quell some people's fears that, oh, you know someone might not know what they're doing. But at the end of the day, I also believe most people who are actually inclined to legally carry a pistol on their hip tend to know what they're doing. Um, And that's mostly from my own experience. I live in Northern Virginia where not a lot of people own firearms. And I know a handful of individuals who do and who live in Who have since moved to other states and obtained their concealed carry permits, none of them are the type of individuals that are just like, oh, I think guns are cool. Let me go carry this around. Um, And now there certainly are going to be those people. And like I said at the beginning of this podcast, there are dangers associated with guns. I think the benefits outweigh them. There are dangers associated when there's an active shooter um, event. What we need to think about is not what is a perfect solution. We need to think what is the best trade-off. And it, it is my opinion that it is a much better trade-off to allow law-abiding citizens to carry firearms with the risk that some of those individuals may not be incredibly well-trained with their firearm than to try to prevent law-abiding individuals from from carrying concealed firearms and opening up you know, different gun-free zones and places where firearms are heavily restricted um, to active shooters without any pushback, um, because at the end of the day, you're going to have to wait for law enforcement to show up, or you're going to have to hope that they act correctly. And so is my opinion, the trade-off of allowing law-abiding citizens to carry concealed firearms outweighs the concerns with the small cohort that might not be as trained as we would like them to be.
1: Speaking of small cohorts, uh, Benjamin Hainian joining us. Uh, We live in the real world, so this is just a real-world question. Social media is what it is. It amplifies everybody, good, bad, or indifferent. Is the small minority of folks online who go way over the top with their love of the Second Amendment and their love of guns, the, the amosexual mean, some people call it. Let's just be real here. They're not helping if you really like the Second Amendment and you're trying to argue for, you know, gun rights and there's a small minority out there that's probably not helping the cause here. What do you do about that? Because there is perceptions. Here's the problem. Both sides are going to grab the other side's extremes is the argument against the other side. Right. I don't think you can solve that problem because people still have freedom of speech, but. Is there a responsibility for gun owners to kind of police their own a little bit and 2A advocates to also reel in their own extremism, not just pointing at the other side's extremism?
3: I think that being a jerk online and throwing your interest or your passion in other people's faces in a way that is meant to rile others up is annoying, infuriating, disgusting. I mean, to put whatever... Um, adjective you want on it. I think it is a bad thing for discourse. I don't, I think at the end of the day, we have an issue in this country of mass shootings. There's an issue of active shooters and there's an issue of gun violence and they're all wrapped in together. And at the end of the day, we all want people to be safer. So yes, I would agree that the small cohort online of individuals that are just looking to piss off people who are worried about gun violence by throwing, you know, their, their guns and their ammo in people's faces and and not wanting to actually engage in any discussion. I do agree that it hurts discourse. And it allows people who are ardent Second Amendment opponents to grab onto those people and use them as, you know, examples of people like me who support the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms, it's easy to then paint everyone with a broad brush. And now we're all trying to argue you know, who's extreme, who has what view, instead of just sitting at the table and and having a discussion. Because of that cohort, a lot of times my first order of business when having a discussion with someone is to prove to them that I'm not that guy. And now we just wasted 10 minutes where we could have been talking solutions on me trying to get them to understand that I'm not the person on social media throwing this stuff in your face. And so it is absolutely a detriment to discourse.
1: Yeah. And I think the other, the reversal on this is true too, that in my discourse with folks, as we try to work through this issue, I think there's a real disconnect with folks that want to say people should not have weapons for self-defense purposes. And you can argue all the rest of it, but really the second amendment, it's self-defense. Do you have a right to protect yourself, your property, and your family? Unless, more and more, one of the overriding issues in all of our country is government accountability. That goes to law enforcement. We're seeing it in schools. We're seeing it in whatever. When the government is not accountable for your safety, and we're seeing it more and more with law enforcement, we saw it in Uvalde. You brought it up earlier. I think there's a real disconnect for them to go all the way to, well, nobody ever needs a gun because the government's going to protect you. That's just so insultingly condescending, not true to people's bare eyes and common lived experience. That's just as harmful, too. Do you disagree?
3: No, I think it's incredibly harmful for two reasons. You know, you point out that we're seeing the government failing to protect us in so many ways today. Um, and I think that. Yes, people would have to shut off their eyes from what's happening on the news and in different areas of the country to believe that the government will simply protect us. But what it also does is it completely disregards all of human history, where most extreme tragedies have actually occurred at the hands of the state. I mean, I pointed to a few um, earlier in our discussion you know there was a gun registry in Germany created in the early 1930s, and when the Nazis took power, they used that registry to disarm political opponents. And then later in the 1930s, they used that registry to disarm German Jews. You know, they they ordered Jews to hand in their weapons. If they didn't comply, it was pretty easy to know that they weren't complying because they had a gun registry. Um, I'm an Armenian and so my ancestors were, you know, tragically. Many of them were killed in the Armenian genocide. Um, individuals in Armenia were disarmed systematically um, before the carrying out of the Armenian genocide. Slaves in the United States couldn't legally own firearms. There were then black codes which tried to bar black individuals on the basis that they weren't citizens. And then, um, after you know, black people were considered citizens in the United States, then there were. Facially neutral laws, which basically raise taxes on guns and ammunition to try and prevent Black Americans and also poor people from owning firearms. Um, Many civil rights activists actually encouraged Black individuals to obtain firearms to protect their families from lynch mobs. Um, And then, once lynch mobs were thwarted, certain states tried to make gun laws stricter so that Black individuals could not protect themselves. And so, not only to, to for people to make the argument that you don't need a gun because the government will protect you, it's not only crazy because they're failing to protect us in so many ways today, it's crazy as well because we see a long history of humanitarian atrocities carried out by the hands of the state. Um, and I think that that's what baffles me the most out of the camp that you know you don't need guns i think that that camp i'm most baffled by the rejection or um, lack of acknowledgement of the history of the human population um and so the that cohort and the cohort on the right who wants to throw their guns in everyone's faces i think both are really harming discourse in this country
1: There's a lot more we could get into there, but we've got to leave it there. Uh, This topic is not going away. We're going to continue to talk about it, and it all goes back to basic rights. What are they, and where does your rights start and somebody else's start, and where's the state's implementation thereof? Good in-depth stuff. Benjamin Ianian. great having you back, buddy. Good job today tough topic. We probably ticked off a little bit of everybody, but that means you're having a good discourse. Let folks know until we get you back on again, how they can follow you. We're going to link to his piece that we were working off here. We're also linking to his social media, but tell folks where they can find you and follow you until we get you on Hertel again.
3: Yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Iyanian, and then you can also find me on Instagram at biyanian 13 Just search my name and you'll find me on either. I post all my writings podcast appearances, et cetera, on there. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me on again, Andrew. It was really nice talking to you.
1: Yep, we'll have you back soon, my friend. Uh, Be well, and we'll talk again soon, sir. Uh, Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we're going to talk war on drugs. We've talked about this quite a bit on this program. We're going to keep talking about it because this problem is not going away. (laughs) New voice to us on this topic, Finesse Moreno-Rivera is joining us. She's a Young Voices contributor. She has a lot of background on this, both in the private sector and uh, advising and working with uh, authorities. Finesse, how are you? Thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Great. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew.
1: Here's where I want to start because This is one of those things that has gotten really buzzwordy and trendy, and we talk about, oh, the war on drugs is bad. Okay, give us the historical perspective before we dive into this thing, because it's been going on for so long. You open up your piece in uh, Blavity about uh, Nixon in 71. I'm old enough to remember George the Elder Bush holding up crack cocaine on national TV in primetime. This has been going on for 50-plus years I don't think people really put the historical term, how long we've been doing this set the stage for us before we dive into this. What is the war on drugs? Because this is, we talk about Afghanistan being 20 years. We're 50 years into this.
4: Yes. It has been going on, uh, excuse me, ongoing for quite some time now for over 50 years, starting with Nixon. And this started with the Vietnam war with our veterans who were addicted primarily with heroin. Um, Unfortunately, as the years went on, one of Nixon's assistants did admit that the war on drugs was pretty much just a front in order for them to go after um, the African-American voters, as well as the so-called hipsters that were consuming marijuana. So this was just a way to really infiltrate those communities um, who were marginalized at the time.
1: And amazingly enough, and this is going to be a theme as we talk about the war on drugs. The reaction to all these veterans are coming home addicted to heroin and other things that they brought back from over there. You know, a lot of it was them self-medicating on top of everything else, but we'll get into that some other time. It wasn't, let's get these people treatment. It's how do we punish this and make it go away? And that's the theme that keeps popping up over and over again. And when we talk about the war on drugs outside of the addiction issues and the criminality, that's really the problem right there, isn't it?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, What we have seen is that Nixon's war on drugs just really set a deadly precedent for um, incoming administrations since then. Unfortunately, when we think about the war on drugs, we immediately think about the anti-drug abuse policy in 1986. Unfortunately, spearheaded by Mr. Biden himself, looking at the city disparity between crack cocaine and power cocaine, Unfortunately, what we were seeing there was more of a knee-jerk reaction of it being punitive rather than helping these communities. And unfortunately, as we all know, that policy wasn't based on evidence or scientific methods whatsoever. I mean, there were also many studies that were proven false as well, looking at how crack cocaine was more dangerous than powder cocaine. And so what you were seeing, again, were the pure, poor communities, such as Black communities, rather than white affluent communities who were being punished for uh, their drug abuse.
1: Yeah. And the accusation was, you know, crack cocaine was just going to be the terminology we were going to use to talk about inner cities and minorities in the inner cities to the greater swath of America. That was the accusation. How much truth was there to that?
4: It was absolutely false. Um Unfortunately, you know, I like to compare the now to then. Where we're seeing, you know, this opioid epidemic is, you know, it's being named a crisis. Where crack cocaine was looked at more as a problem and an actual crime. So unfortunately, what we were seeing was poor, poor communities who weren't receiving the help that they actually needed and who were being labeled as criminals
1: what's the where's the stereotype come from aside from of course we talking there's class and race involved here and there's no way to unwind that ball but why does addiction have such a stigma to it where's the stereotype come from do you think because is, is it is it just the visual of it of somebody destroying their own life and well they did it to themselves that part of it is it all the other stuff, the socioeconomic and the racial and the class that's put on top of it? Because we sure don't seem to have a problem with, you know, stockbrokers doing cocaine constantly, which is a known thing. That gets treated completely different. I know that's a big ball of mess, but where do we even start to attack it from?
4: That's a really good question, Andrew, because <laughs> the question to that is it's definitely multifaceted. is socioeconomic. It's also race. Um, And so I think that in order to start to make amends with what has occurred with the drug policy, um, its negative effects is definitely to treat drug abuse as a health crisis, as something that should be looked at as, as a health crisis, as in it shouldn't be looked at as a crime itself. And unfortunately in our country, we tend to stigmatize drug abuse negatively um It's definitely looked down upon, especially when you're comparing it to something such as mental health, right? We're just now as a country starting to um, look into mental health and realizing that it's a norm for us and it should be talked about and there should be resources for individuals rather than there being a negative stigma attached to that.
1: Yeah, finesse. Uh, Moreno Rivera joining us. Okay. Here's the problem with that, and I know this because I've been writing and advocating about it for a couple of years. If you're going to treat it as a public health thing, that means you have to deal with it as a public health issue, which means you're not only doing treatment, you're trying to do prevention. And every time somebody tries to do mitigation or prevention with drug abusers, they always get accused of, without exception, and I've seen it over and over again, and you have too, oh, you're just feeding the addicts by doing this. How do we have that conversation because every time you go to a municipality and go, Hey, we have a harm reduction strategy or, Hey, you know, you can't take somebody from zero to 60 on addiction. You have to give them this intermediate steps that are kind of icky. How do we have that conversation with us? Cause when we start talking about the war on drugs overall, that intermediate step of we don't need to be punitive; we need to do this treatment stuff. That's where the the sticky part of the, this really gets ugly, and we don't seem to be able to communicate, not only with communities but just with like government agencies and others. Can we?
4: No, no, we can't. And again, it goes back to that negative stigma for individuals where we are just so paid based as a culture and being punitive rather being. Um, looking at a way to help those individuals. So let's say, for example, looking at Biden's new package that he just put into play for harm reduction, we are having a lot of pushback from some of the states saying that it is condoning the use of drugs. However, they're not looking at the positives that, that come from harm reduction programs, such as looking at safe injection sites looking at providing test strips that can indicate if there is a substance that has fentanyl. I think that a lot of individuals get lost with these harm reduction programs because they're not seeing the ultimate goal, which is to reduce drug overdoses in the U.S.
1: And one of the biggest things that I try to do when I cover this and talk about it is the stigma is, well, it's an addict and they're doing it to themselves. That's a lie. The addiction is a bomb that goes off in these families and these communities because it destroys not only the person, it destroys their families. This puts enormous taxation on healthcare facilities, criminal justice facilities the legal system, the court systems, the social service, especially in smaller communities or inner cities or places that are already strapped for resources. These are absolute bombs going off that cross a lot of streams of different things, and they're just almost impossible to deal with, aren't they?
4: Yes, absolutely. And it's really hard for individuals to realize that this is definitely a community-oriented effort, and it takes a lot. It's a, it's a heavy list because you have to have a lot of hands in the pot. You have to have, you know, enough funding for sites. You have, a, have to have enough um, support from your policymakers as well as those who are in the city, then the state. Than on the federal level. And so although this is a heavy lift, I think that individuals tend to really give up and don't see that end goal, which is reducing the drug overdoses. And by also understanding that while we're curbing the drug overdoses, we're also preventing more deadlier drugs to come out on the street. For example, we have a new, we have a new flood of drugs known as benzodope, which is effectively just benzos that are combined with fentanyl heroin or cocaine and what this does is it gives the user an even higher chance of overdosing and unfortunately benzo dope has been shown to not um is not affected by narcan narcan cannot reverse overdoses uh, for benzodope as of right now so what we're seeing is that users aren't getting help they continue to graduate to more harmful drugs, which then opens up even more opportunities for drug traffickers um, who can come up with different cutting agencies and make drugs even more dangerous.
1: Yeah, and it's important what you just said because people are like, well, why is the overdose spiking? One of the reasons they're overdosing and they're spiking and the death count has gone way, way up, even though the drug use hasn't uh, gone up in a, a measurable same way. This new fentanyl, the benzo dope, you're talking about. These are not the drugs that we have been traditionally dealing with. This is a whole new beast, and even hardened drug users, that their system is used for it. This stuff is just absolutely deadly. Sometimes on the first take, this is very different than what we've been seeing over the past, isn't it?
4: Yes, absolutely. What we're also seeing is now that we have fentanyl has our attention here in the U.S. Again, we are seeing these drug traffickers who are able to find new ways to cut these drugs to make it cheaper, as well as easier to move. So they're always looking at the end of the day, their profit, how much money they can make. In addition, we're also having other individuals who, again, are making their own home labs, if you will, to create these drugs and then sell them.
1: And the other problem with this, and we kind of already touched on it, but you mentioned it in your piece. I want to make sure we highlight it. The other parts that come with this, especially in black communities, poverty stricken communities, um, incarceration, STDs, mental health problems. Then all the criminality comes in with that. There's no way to separate all that when you're dealing with drug use, especially when the drugs are getting more and more potent, which is going to affect these people more and more.
4: Absolutely. You cannot you cannot disconnect the consequences of drug abuse within these communities. But then what also makes it worse is that they do not have the means to get the help that they need. So you're seeing more drug overdoses within the Black communities, communities of color. Another thing that I would also like to note is that because of, I guess, the lower the lower seat, if you will, that colored individuals are on when it comes to our social hierarchy ladder, they are more exposed to the, the supply chain being lower, which makes them more prone to be exposed to stronger drugs, just given the fact that they are going hand in hand with the drug dealers themselves who are on the street.
1: Yeah. Finesse Moreno Rivera joining us. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back. We're going to talk about some of the policy stuff like that uh, that deal with the war on drugs. Trump, some of the stuff Biden's doing just recently didn't make a whole lot of headlines but makes a whole lot of difference in how the war on drug is prosecuting then we're going to get into some solutions hopefully what can we do about a problem that seems nigh near unsolvable finesse moreno rivera joining us on her tell more with her right after this welcome back to her tell we're talking about the war on drugs which is one of the worst named things ever for something that has been highly destructive very expensive and has gotten us nothing closer to what it was set out to do we're talking to finesse Moreno Rivera about it um, let's talk some of the policy stuff here you walked us through it in your piece and blavity we're linking to it like we always tell you please read the entire piece for yourself. And she links to a lot of source documentation that you also need to read up on this. Look, information is the key to a complex issue. And this has a lot of information in it. Um, Before we get to Biden, you already mentioned him. Let's back up. The Trump administration in 2018 did some temporary class widening scheduling of fentanyl stuff. This has repercussions. But for folks that don't know, when we're talking about the drug classes and that sort of thing, what is it and what does it mean when they do things like that?
4: Usually what this means is that they can be very much harsher punishment for individuals, no matter the weight or the amount of the given drug. So this is very similar to looking back at crack cocaine itself. We're looking at the sentencing disparity in the amount of the drug itself. So instead of looking at the harm that it causes, it's really looking at the amount that the individual may be possessing at the time.
1: Yeah. And you have a stat here that uh, the majority of offenders arrested on this program are black street level dealers at the end of the drugs distribution chain, not the movers and the distributors that, you know, they claim that they're normally going after law enforcement like everybody else. They like to get the lowest hanging fruit. Quoting you here, very few incarcerations have mitigated the availability supply of fentanyl. As of 2019, 75 percent of individuals prosecuted and sentenced for the fentanyl offenses were people of color. But then the next paragraph, you bring it up. The real problem here, the Biden administration, they also extended the scheduling policy last year and this year, both. What does it mean in practical terms that they continue to continue this policy? To repeat myself.
4: Absolutely. What this means in layman's terms is that they are continuing the same thing that they did with cocaine in that unfortunately what we're starting to see is that instead of seeing the supplier, the individuals who should be incarcerated, we're seeing these low level we're seeing these low level individuals who are providing the drugs, predominantly African American, going back into the jail and prison systems due to their involvement with fentanyl.
1: This isn't ever, you know, this is whack-a-mole. If all you're doing is hitting the street level stuff and you've got the stats in your piece about how much of this comes through from overseas, how much of this goes through government controlled points of access, they're not stopping this stuff. They're just getting the street level folks. That's doing absolutely nothing for the wider problem other than, you know, filling the prisons up with street level people who are mostly repeat offenders anyway, right?
4: Absolutely, Andrew, and unfortunately right now what we're seeing with our incarceration rates is about 85% of individuals who are currently incarcerated are incarcerated given their use of drugs or selling of drugs. So this really isn't doing much of anything. However, looking back at Trump's administration, the move is what they thought was good at the time, considering that fentanyl, the source is predominantly from China, and although China has tried to regulate their fentanyl chemical manufacturing, again, criminals will be criminals may always be finding this loophole, poll. And so what you'll find is a lot of individuals such as myself can get online, Facebook, um, or the dark web and able to purchase chemicals that are similar to fentanyl and create my own products myself and then sell it on the street.
1: and as you bring up in your piece, Um, the problem with, you know, prohibition, which is just, we're going to have this war on drugs and it's going to be this massive federal funding and it's the main income stream for law enforcement and right on down the line is it exacerbates all the problems already inherent in the system, racial biases, drug overdoses, disease, corruption, uh, the violence that goes around it. All of that gets exasperated because now it's a business model on top of being a criminal philosophy of trying to abate crime, right?
4: Yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a perfect business model if you think about it. I mean, unfortunately, what's happening is is again, people of color are the ones who are paying the price for this. No one's really taking any no one's really taking any type of responsibility in admitting that what we continue to do is wrong, what we have done is wrong, and we're still continuing to make the same mistakes. Black individuals are the ones who continue to pay for these mistakes as well. And unfortunately, what we're seeing now, especially with Biden's extension for fentanyl, it's not getting any better. And although he may be enacting these harm reduction programs, he still is not doing any better with keeping black, predominantly black males out of jails and prisons.
1: Now, there is some good news on this. You took a public health approach to some of your solutions that you would like to see put out. Um, Black Americans statistically do respond really well to public health programs. We've got statistics. They do. So what's a couple of the things you were pointing out that they should take more of a public health and prevention standpoint than a punitive and law enforcement standpoint that might actually do some good here?
4: Absolutely. Some of the solutions include safe injecting sites. I know that there was a lot of uproar on um, online as well, a lot of jokes with Biden mentioning with his harm reduction programs, you know, syringes, for example, free syringes. That's a big deal because that also prevents diseases. So I know also there was a lot of pushback from the communities for safe ingesting sites. Let's be honest, who wants a safe ingesting site right down the street, say from you know, their their kid's school or right around the corner from their from the neighborhood. So that's something that has had a lot of pushback, but has also shown to be very successful in preventing, again, the long-term goal of drug overdoses.
1: Yeah, and one of the ones that popped through um, the news cycle and made headlines uh, back uh, a couple months ago was the crack pipe sleeve thing. If you remember that one, where everybody mm-hmm. got in an uproar because they were well, because the problem is they were sharing pipes and spreads hepatitis C and we're having HIV spikes in drug communities and everything else. So they were trying to do that and everybody went, no, 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 they're giving out crack pipes. It's like, well, these are people that's going to do that anyway. So this goes back. And I'm going to ask the question again, because we touched on it at the beginning of our conversation, but I think it bears emphasis. How do you have that conversation with somebody who's just going to hear the term pipe or just going to hear the term injection site or syringe, and they're just going to recoil, Is there any way to have that conversation with someone who's like, no, you can't go from zero to 60 on addiction. You've got to give them some intermediate steps. These are those intermediate steps. Or you get these communicable diseases that are not going to stay confined to just the drug community.
4: Unfortunately, what I found when speaking with individuals who don't condone harm reduction, who do get that pushback, is they have yet to experience something that in their life. And life is part of living and learning. And not that I would ever wish anyone to themselves or have a loved one who has been through um, drug addiction, but it's really something that you don't see that is important and steps that need to be taken unless you lived it yourself or been in that situation or lived in those communities. So until we are able to have those open conversations and learn from each other, I honestly don't know how we're gonna get over this negative stigma of individuals who do need assistance when working with drug abuse.
1: Now, you had touched on the one that's the real uh, firing point for a lot of the debate over the drug. You bring up decriminalization. Get into the nomenclature for me because legalizing and decriminalization are two different things. So how are you using it and define the term for folks so that they all know what we're talking about here?
4: Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up, Andrew. So there are different definitions for decriminalization. And a lot of different countries or even states, as I cited within the article for Oregon, define it in different ways. For myself, I would see decriminalization as non-punishable depending upon the amount of drug. And when I say decriminalization, I also mean decriminalizing, making legal, non-punishable, all drugs that were seen. I think it's also important to note, too, by doing so, we can really work on the racial bias that we're seeing. We can work on um, the diseases that are being spread. We can work on the corruption that's occurring. We can also work on taking away the power of of these drug smugglers and drug traffickers themselves.
1: We started out talking about the war on drugs and the history of it. We mentioned the opioid crisis. What's some of the lessons from the war on drugs that we should be applying to the opioid crisis? How much of it is a continuation and maybe an evolving of the same problem? How much of it is a very different thing that should be addressed differently, do you think?
4: I think that the opioid crisis is something that should be should be addressed separately and unfortunately i see it being ongoing there have been three waves in the opioid crisis the first being unfortunately the abuse of prescription drugs which was the over which was caused by overprescribing the opioids you, Purdue pharma going on to second given the fact that supply and demand was interrupted by this um, individuals were the high the demand was high for opioids but the supply wasn't there then you are seeing the second wave individuals shifting to heroin. And now in our third wave, which is even more deadlier, it's fentanyl, which is also, as I've already discussed, combined with cocaine, methamphetamine, heroin, which is also driving our drug overdoses. So unfortunately, we really have to take this opioid crisis completely different because what we're seeing is that it's going in waves for us in this country. And as of right now, we are starting to shift primarily into a fourth wave, where I do believe that instead of being reliant upon opioids such that are plant-based in themselves, we're going to start seeing a lot more deaths, as we have already seen with fentanyl, that are man-made. I really do think that we're starting to make a move because of opioids into a more synthetic space for drug use, and that's just going to become even more deadlier for us.
1: Yeah, it's gonna be more deadly for the people. And it's gonna be a whole lot harder to police because now you don't need a supply chain. You can make this stuff in your sink. It's gonna be a real big mess. Let, let let's round this off this way. Uh finesse Moreno Rivera joining us. Um how do we we understand the federal government is a leviathan and it's hard to get a hold of it for any good reason whatsoever. What can the average person do to start talking about this? I'm talking about on their social media. I'm talking about amongst their friends and family when these things come up, maybe in their communities when they're having, you know, a community meeting about, you know, we just had it in Parkersburg, West Virginia, where they shut down trying to get a rehab for something Bill, even though they badly need one because the residents freaked out. Stuff like that. How can people in a practical way, not buzzwords, not theory, not, you know, the big things we talk about, just when they're talking to each other on Facebook or texting or whatever the case may be, that can move this conversation forward, that they can start mixing into their discussions of, hey, this is actually a problem that we all need to deal with and we can do this I think it's really important for
4: there to be open. You know conversation and discussion, similar to what you just said, Andrew, being able to be open and speaking with others. I think it's also very important that we continue to educate each other. A lot of times, again, thinking about a socioeconomic level, just really having uh, those silos created. You know unfortunately, really can hamper our conversations about things that may be affecting others more than ourselves. I think that, just taking the time to also getting to know your community, getting to know your neighbor, paying attention to what's going on within your surroundings as well. Because when you open your eyes, you're walking down streets. no matter if it's within a small town, whether that's in a city, you can really tell the detriment that has occurred due to drug use, uh, drug abuse. Um, And so I think it's really time for us as a country to really open our eyes, be honest, take responsibility and start making the movement to help these individuals in taking a more health avenue rather than taking a more punitive one.
1: Yeah. And I, I always tell people when we talk about this, you've got to see this as a people problem first, not a policy problem. That's where this goes sideways. First and foremost, like these are people and you got to fix them like people and people are complicated. You're not going to be able to, you know, get a spreadsheet and get a solution to fix this thing. It's a people problem. Uh, Finesse Moreno Rivera, outstanding stuff, really hard topic. So let's end on something good here. I got to know about this orchid back here because I've done orchids (laughs) for years to various effects. I had a great one in Germany. Had to leave it there because of regulations. Not so good lately, but tell me about the orchid because I love (laughs) that thing back there. That's beautiful.
4: Thank you so much, Andrew. As of right now, myself and my fiance, we have over 40 plants within our home. Good Lord. small dwelling and we have over 10 orchids that are thriving just like the one right behind me um, it's very very pleasant it's very soothing and as a criminal justice expert i really need to take the time to make sure my environment around me is beautiful and supports a very healthy um, atmosphere for me <laughs> so i really enjoy having orchids especially because they're beautiful and they're worth putting in the time for
1: I've got one on the other side of my desk that you can't see that I had to trim down. It's back down to the leaves. So I got to wait till the spring to get anything off it, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah. All right. Well, you, you have an addiction to orchids duly noted. We'll uh, work up a piece for that. That's <laughs> uh, Moreno Rivera. Outstanding stuff today. Uh, until we get you back on the show again, let folks know where they can keep up with you and what you have going on and how they can follow you until they hear from you again on her Tell. Absolutely. So
4: I will continue to, put out more of my work, Um, as of right now, I'm working on something else, looking at mass incarceration, particularly looking at how we can humanize it um, as much as we possibly can. Obviously, not as close to, we can uh, for Europe, but that's coming soon. As of right now, I'm also working on putting up Instagram. Um, But if anyone's interested in my work or any other articles, please feel free to reach out to Young Voices, Um, as well as my LinkedIn profile, which is just Penasquilino
1: Rivera. Yep. And we'll link to all that in the show notes, including the piece that we were working off of in Blavity, uh, war on drugs and American casualties, especially the black community. We're going to keep talking about this. We're glad you're one of the people advocating for it. So you're going to come back and we're going to keep talking about it. Thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it, ma'am. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Yes, ma'am. Ah, Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, it's been a while since we've seen him, but we're thrilled to have him back. Another of our great Young Voices contributors, Christopher Barnyard, London School of Economics guy. Again, they don't let people just walk in there. That's a very prestigious school. He's got all kinds of great writing credits, including this piece in the Wall Street Journal somewhere. I haven't gotten into yet, but I'm going to keep trying real hard at it. Uh, Chris, great seeing you again, my friend. How have you been, sir?
5: Yeah, been good. Thanks for having me on
1: fantastic good to see you again uh half american and half belgium and lived in europe glory what a combination
5: yeah no it's been it's been uh, interesting moving from from europe and then to the uk and then to the us so it's been a it's been a whirlwind
1: let's actually just start there for a second before we get into the nuclear stuff because um people are always wanting to compare america and europe when it comes to things like energy policy nuclear policy things like this I was the reverse. I grew up in America. And then when I was in the military, I lived in Germany two different times. So I got to see it from that respect. Talk about that real quick though, especially since you do political and cultural commentary. Now how that shapes you when you go overseas in your case, live overseas and then come over here, how that shapes you and changes kind of a broader perspective. Cause I know that really, really changed how I saw the world.
5: Yeah, of course. I think one of the interesting things about growing up in Europe is obviously the countries are so much smaller. And so you're much more exposed to different cultures very quickly. So I grew up speaking three languages and was just very much uh, directly confronted with other cultures and visiting other countries. Whereas America as a country is the size of a continent. Um, and when it comes to to something like energy policy, I think that also has an impact. Whereas in the US you have abundant natural resources that really we've been able to tap in and has helped America become the superpower in the world. Um, in Europe, you, you, countries are smaller, you have fewer resources, there's more demand. Like There's more competition between should this be agricultural land, should this be energy production, should this be homes, whatever it might be. Um, and I think as a result, in a way, politicians have actually um, become quite idealistic rather than realistic when it comes to these kinds of things. And so instead of um, understanding that, for example, with energy, that producing your energy is, is a good thing, like the U.S. has done, they've They've actually been overly idealistic about that and said, "Oh, we can just import it from other places." It just happened to be that a lot of the energy they've been importing has being from Russia or from the middle east uh places like that. Now that's starting to shift to America, but the reality is that a lot of Europe is reliant on other countries rather than on themselves for their energy, and they're starting to feel the feel the pinch of that.
1: I actually think it's important that we start there because something that people miss out when they compare America and Europe is exactly what you were saying. When you live there, like, you know, it's a five hour drive for me to go to another state in some places in America, if not further. Five hour drive when I lived in Frankfurt, man, I could be I could be in Holland. I could be in Paris. I could be down in the Alps in the Tirol. Like th- it's like going state to state over there. So I think you have hit on something here when we're talking about European policies like energy. You need to not think of it as other countries the way we do in America where we're more isolated. It really is like states. They're more compact. they're more. This has a practical effect on how their policy is. I think that's something maybe the American audience and the Western audience misses out on how Europe does stuff. Is that a fair way to put it, you think?
5: Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and the smallness, um, really like the competition for land is a huge thing. In America, if you look at Texas, which is uh, obviously the biggest oil and gas producer in the U.S., it's an enormous state. It's like a state almost like the size of like half of Europe, pretty much. Whereas in in Europe, like Belgium, where I grew up, is one of the most densely populated countries in the world because of how small it is and how many people there are. So it's obviously not as easy to just go and uh, have vast swathes of land to explore your natural resources. You have other demands for it. And I think that's a, a huge factor in
0: Europe.
1: Let's talk nuclear real quick because it's all over the headlines not because of nuclear, but because of the alternatives. We know what's going on in Ukraine, the illegal war of aggression that Vladimir Putin is doing. Vladimir Putin is weaponizing. He's doing this because of that energy. We have the data now. They're still making money on their energy exports, even with the war in Ukraine, which is just a startling statistic. But everything that's going on geopolitically right now is because winter is coming. General Winter, we always talked about the Russian army's greatest general, General Winter, this is a new twist on that because he's using energy, but that didn't happen in a vacuum. That happened in a sequence. And when it comes to Western Europe, the old Western bloc, they kind of set themselves up to get in this predicament, didn't they?
5: Yeah, I mean, there there really has been a, a very deliberate and strategic effort by Russia to make the European continent um, and especially the EU dependent on Russian fossil fuels. So you saw a lot of countries like Germany, um started kind of closing down their natural gas production they started closing down their nuclear plants um and they they figured well we'll we'll replace that with renewables Uh, and if not renewables we will just buy oil and gas from somewhere else in this case russia but the interesting thing is that there's actually a lot of reports coming out that um the russians and and kind of the the russian uh propaganda machine is is very good at infiltrating countries and spreading disinformation and kind of actually supporting causes that would be damaging to those other countries. And we actually found a lot of uh, evidence that Russia has been involved in funding anti-nuclear and anti-natural gas campaigners um, across Europe because it suits Russia for these countries to become reliant on Russia rather than on themselves. And so what we've seen right now is uh, Russia has been building up reserves of of money uh, for a while now, where They knew when they invaded Ukraine, there would be the inevitable consequences, sanctions, economic isolation, all that uh, stuff. But because they have such a stranglehold energy-wise over Europe, they've uh, been able to weather those consequences. And that's been a very strategic and deliberate effort.
1: Yeah. And to the point I talked about living in Germany, the first time I lived in Germany, Gerhard Schroeder was the chancellor of Germany. He was on the board of one of the Russian uh, energy companies and a lot of malfeasance there that we now goes back a ways this is very deliberate it's strategic but and you touched in it on your piece in the wall street journal we're going to link to it please read the entire piece make sure you share it with your friends this is starting to cause some movement in some very unexpected places in europe germany's still dragging their feet of course schultz is still new to office so that's a little bit different situation belgium you talk about their green party the dutch who are always very very uh, environmentally conscious they're starting to make some noise Talk about some of the other countries that we don't often talk about in geopolitics, but we're seeing some movements on the energy front here, aren't we?
5: Yeah, we are. And really what what we're seeing is we're seeing three crises come together. We're seeing kind of the geopolitical crisis of what's happening in Ukraine, and we've talked about that. You're seeing a little bit of an economic crisis right now. Um, the Biden administration doesn't want to admit that we're in a recession, but we are pretty much in a recession. And um, economically, with inflation, gas prices... Um, a lot of the West is and around the world is is hurting. So there's this economic crisis. Uh, But then the third crisis is um, kind of our our targets to tackle climate change and to reduce our emissions and to move towards cleaner energy. And for a long time, countries were overly idealistic about how we could uh, continue having strong economies, being um, uh, energy independent, but then also tackling climate change. And the reality is by shutting down natural gas, by shutting down nuclear plants, And relying on russian fossil fuels you're not going to achieve that and so a lot of countries like uh, belgium like the netherlands uh, but really countries all over the world have been forced to realize that if they want to have a stable and secure supply of energy they want it to be clean and they want to strengthen their economies they can't do that without nuclear power
1: yeah put your belgium hat on for just a second uh of course brussels is the center of the eu so it's a little bit different beast anyway but A country like brussels or like uh you know the netherlands that aren't on the front lines of the ukraine stuff but they're intricately tied to the rest of europe what are the common folks there thinking about all this right now because they they think differently than americans we're very independently thought europe it's a little different they understand that this is all interconnected beyond the headlines and the noise of it how are they seeing this situation like you said this is actually three crises kind of meeting at the middle on a lot of things this is stuff, they know these are crises, like they don't, this isn't a surprise to any of them, what are they thinking as they look at this environment right now?
5: Well, I think the the evidence from, from Belgium, I'll also add the Netherlands, because they're two very similar countries, and, and my my father's actually Dutch, so I, I know both countries pretty well, uh, but what they're, what they're seeing right now is, obviously they're shocked at what's happening in Ukraine, um, and then I can imagine from the US, it's a little further for us to look at this, be like, oh well, like that's a terrible thing, but we're still like a continent and an ocean away. But if you're in Belgium and if you're in, in the Netherlands, you're still actually like relatively close to um, to like what's happening. And, and uh, obviously Belgium and the Netherlands were were important scenes in, in both world wars that happened on the European continent. So they're certainly kind of spooked about this, but at the same time, they're, they're seeing um, really the reality of bad energy policy come to fruition. Um, prices, energy prices are going up immensely. Inflation is up immensely. Um, they're not even sure they'll have enough energy reserves to get through the winter. Um, and at the same time, they don't want to fund the war machine of Vladimir Putin. Um, and so what's happened in Belgium is uh, the Green Party um, had been campaigning very heavily to shut down Belgium's remaining nuclear reactors. Um, the Green Parties around the world tend to be pretty anti-nuclear, which which is something I don't really understand, but uh, but they are. And they just realized that, well, if we want to make sure we don't buy Russian fossil fuels and we want to make sure that we're tackling climate change and our people have affordable energy we have to keep these nuclear plants open so the the belgian green party did a huge u-turn um, and are extending the life of the country's remaining two reactors uh, by a decade now um, the netherlands uh, which uh, also is experiencing these war-induced energy shortages um, are now actually hoping to construct two new plants and they're actually pressuring the german government to try and keep their plants open so you're kind of seeing this interesting movements in European politics towards understanding that you really can't do any of these things without nuclear energy.
1: Yeah. And the attitude, the attitude is important here because we know the policy arguments. We know the environmental arguments. We know the fiscal arguments. But at the core of this, people just have a weird thing with nuclear. For whatever reason, and you covered in your piece, of course, Fukushima in Europe. Of course, there's plenty of people with lived experience with Chernobyl where they thought that might do really bad damage to Europe and did in some respects. Uh, of course, Three Mile Island here in America, even though that was actually a success story when you actually dig into the technicals of it. People are just weird about nuclears is that attitude change is going to be just as important as any ideological or policy pitches, right? Because the people's got to be ready to move there to move on it, right? Yeah, I mean, you kind of see that
5: in Germany actually right now is because of the current crisis, Germans are realizing that the situation they have right now is just really untenable. And so opinion polling in Germany has actually shifted to the extent that a majority of Germans right now support keeping their last nuclear plants open um the cdu the the party that actually campaigned under angela merkel and then successfully uh agreed on the legislation to shut down all of the nuclear plants in germany they now are publicly saying maybe we should keep them open and obviously they're 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 no longer solely in power and so you have you have the coalition government there which is still very much kind of uh, against this idea of keeping the nuclear plants open but really what you're seeing is that uh In places like Germany, places like Belgium, public opinion is starting to turn to in favor of nuclear energy simply because they're being forced to.
1: Yeah. Christopher Barnard uh, joining us on Hertel. We're going to get more into the nuclear part of this. We're going to continue to talk about his great piece in Wall Street Journal. It's not just Europe, uh, Asia and the Pacific Rim. A lot of questions about nuclear right here in the U.S. We're going to come closer to home, talk about some things, including current legislation up for debate might be some movement towards nuclear going to be talking about that christopher barnard young voices contributor great writer great guy going to continue with him on young voices right after this Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Christopher Barnard's joining us, a great Young Voices contributor. Happy to have him. He's writing in the Wall Street Journal about nuclear power and the energy crisis. Worldwide energy crisis is no other way to put it because we're seeing it all over the place. Um, let's go to the Pacific Rim for a second. Uh, we see what's happening in Sri Lanka. Tangentially, we see what's happening in Africa. When When you can't get oil and gas into a country, really bad, ugly things happen in a hurry japan's a lot more stable of course but they have that specter of fukushima but even with japan they're now talking about and you know we have the godzilla culture of course which godzilla is the metaphor for screwing around with splitting the atom and blah 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 even they are like okay we've got to get serious about this nuclear thing that's kind of a title shift isn't it
5: yeah it is absolutely and and you know with with the the accident ship in fukushima was uh what many countries around the world experience as a wake-up call as to the dangers of nuclear power. But as you mentioned earlier, actually, similar to Three Mile Island, Fukushima was in many ways actually a success story for nuclear energy. No one died from the nu- from the reactor meltdown. The The only people that that died were from, from the uh, the forced evacuation, unfortunately. But that had mostly to do with a tsunami, not with the kind of inherent dangers of nuclear energy. Um, but it spooked a lot of countries. So Japan kind of fully denuclearized... Uh, It inspired countries like Germany to also denuclearize. But what what you're seeing right now, because of this crisis, um, the the Japanese energy minister recently uh, admitted that their 2030 climate emissions goal is based on restarting up to 30 nuclear reactors. Um, Just by this winter, they they, they plan to bring nine nuclear reactors fully online so that they have enough energy to get through the winter. And so you're really seeing that the country that almost led this denuclearization, this kind of nuclear phobia around the world, is actually the one that is turning to nuclear out of necessity um, faster than anyone could have imagined.
1: It's not just Japan, which is, of course, one of the leading economies and leading technology uh, countries. Emerging uh, economies, Indonesia, Vietnam, the Philippines, they're all investing in nuclear energy. Uh, There's also a subheading here, though. Because one of the world, we talk about nuclear energy as being a clean fuel, and we should because I don't, I don't think you can honestly talk about environmentalism without talking about nuclear energy. I just don't think you can. But one of the world's greatest polluters in China, they're actually quietly starting to fund a lot of these foreign uh, new nuclear energy products. That's going to be an interesting dynamic to keep an eye on, isn't it?
5: Yeah, it is, and I think really what China is realizing as well is that um, reliable affordable, clean energy is crucially important in the future and no other source of energy provides it as well as nuclear does. And so they're investing hugely in building nuclear plants in the U.S. Um, They've got hundreds of nuclear plants planned or that are already being constructed, uh, but they're not just doing it in the U.S., they're doing it in other countries as well because they're realizing that if they can make these other countries reliant on Chinese built energy infrastructure then the Chinese government has enormous leverage over them, very similarly to the leverage that Putin has over over, over Europe right now. And so really we're seeing that um, China, a country that everyone looks to as like the worst emitter in terms of uh, carbon dioxide, is now also one of the biggest investors in clean energy in the world. And we simply can't afford to fall behind on that.
1: Yeah, let's bring this home to America. You just talked about Japan building uh, more nuclear reactors. They want to build 12 of them. Uh, the opposite is true here. We're closing them since 2012. We've closed a slew of them. California's down to one. Diablo Canyon is actually the picture on your piece in the Wall Street Journal. Now, uh, even California, as far left as it can get, sometimes they're even like, no, 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 don't shut this thing down. You're going to crash the economy. Uh, what has we understand the Three Mile Island stuff? This has really been mostly regulatory uh, crushing of an industry when we talk about nuclear power. Why we haven't built new ones since basically the 70s,
5: right? Yeah, I mean, there was obviously after after Chernobyl and then after Fukushima. There's there just was a lot of apprehension uh, after obviously Three Mile Island as well. A lot of apprehension about nuclear energy in the U.S. And so you have the 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 regulatory agency in charge of this, which is called the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, and for a 30 year period. Um, between the 1970s and 2012, they didn't approve a single new nuclear reactor license, which meant that we been, didn't build any new nuclear. We weren't expanding or modernizing this crucial energy infrastructure. Um, and and even for the the reactors that have been approved since, um, it takes years and millions of dollars to get anything through the NRC. Um, recently, there's a, a company called New Scale, which I also mentioned in the article, uh, they're building a small modular reactor. In fact, the first commercial um, small modular reactor. But it took them six years and a 12,000-page application to get through the NRC. And they reported that it they estimated it cost about half a billion dollars for them to um, get their application and design certified. And that's just incredibly burdensome on any company that wants to build new technology and that wants to expand infrastructure in this country. Um, and so we need to look at expanding of, of Um, making these timelines much faster, expediting the approval, but also making these regulations um, much more sensible so that we're not holding back this crucial energy source.
1: And even with all Christopher Barnard joining us, even with all of that, we are seeing billions of investment in nuclear right now. Small modular reactors are kind of the hot ticket right now. Next generation, uh, they're trying, there's actually quite a bit of research into some stuff that's not ready to build, but often the, foreseeable horizon in the area of nuclear, especially, you know, being able to maybe put it in like rural areas, things like this, a little bit more portable stuff. Uh, Bill Gates is involved in this, New Scale's involved in this. There's still, even with all that going on, I got to imagine if they're pouring billions into it, even with all that upfront cost you just talked about, even a modest change in regulatory would probably really open the floodgates on this, wouldn't it?
5: Yeah, I mean, like you say, the private sector is very interested in investing in this. And also uh, to to the Biden administration's credit, they have been openly pro-nuclear. And you do have kind of a little bit more of a pro-nuclear bipartisan consensus on Capitol Hill. And so there are uh, a lot of bills talking about how can we incentivize this? How can we um, make sure that uh, we're leveling the playing field between different energy sources? Because the reality is that nuclear is been left behind with a lot of policies that have come out of out of DC. And so I, I do think it is it is very positive and many companies are investing billions into this advanced technology, including fusion technology, uh, which is very exciting. Um, so i'm 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 very bullish on nuclear, but there are some important policy steps that need to be taken um, to ensure that we can actually build and build on time.
1: You touched on it in your piece because you talked about anti-nuclear activists. How much of this is a cultural generational thing? Because we're now 30-some years post-Cold War. People aren't growing up. Most of the, you know, 30s and 40s and early 50s working adults, they didn't grow up under the fear of a nuclear weapon dropping out of the sky on them as the previous generation did. They didn't really grow up uh, with a working knowledge, a fear of this stuff the way the previous generation did. You talk about the nuclear activists. That just isn't really that much of a thing now because people... I think are a little more informed, like we spoke about, about there's just no way you're going to have more electric everything without more electricity. And if you're going to have clean electricity, there's nothing better than nuclear. How much of this do you think is just going to be kind of a generational shift where the new generation doesn't have the priors and they have a little bit more knowledge of how it works? Is that kind of the thing that's tipping this all of a sudden, do you think?
5: I think it's a little bit of that. I I definitely, like the polling does show that younger people tend to be more positive towards nuclear energy. Interestingly, men tend to be twice as likely to support nuclear energy as women. Um, But broadly speaking, there is that generational gap, uh, which I do think plays a role in this. Uh, But I also think like uh, what I was talking about before, just reality, just like cold, brutal, hard reality is forcing people to to accept that this is something we need to consider, even if they might be apprehensive about some of the risks. And so you see uh, Senator, Di- Senator Dianne Feinstein from California was anti-nuclear for a lot of her career, wanted Diablo Canyon to shut down, and she's an older lady and now she wants Diablo Canyon to stay alive because she realizes it's our only option. Um, so that is really a, a, an important factor. And the final thing I'll mention is with these Next generation nuclear designs and reactors, um, the small modular reactors, is designs by NuScale or TerraPower, which is Bill Gates' company, or even Oaklo, which are building, they're building a, a micro reactor, which is even smaller. Um, I think the image of nuclear as an old, outdated technology is changing to something that is forward looking, that is exciting, that is innovative. Um, and I think that as we build more and more of those reactors, and that's more the image of nuclear, you have to look up some of the images of the, of the designs. It looks super cool and futuristic. I think that's going to help uh, change some of the public perception as well.
1: Also, let's go to a practical level to wrap this up, because this is a lot of theory and this is a lot of, you know, geopolitics and things like that. And people can kind of get lost in it. If you could do these small scale nuclear reactors, I'm thinking places like Appalachia. I'm thinking about the West where the uh, population is very diverse and you need, you know, just the physical moving of energy between two places, you know, you lose a lot of it um, the Pacific Northwest, places like this that have environmental issues. If you could get these small scale reactors into these local communities, what a game changer, not just environmentally, but also potentially economically, because now all of a sudden, a place like Appalachia, you could get people in there that want to run businesses because their energy would be a lot cheaper. You could get them out in the middle West where all that land you were talking about, that's so controversial, plenty of it out there and cheap, relatively speaking. On a practical level, this could be a very important cultural, communal, and also economic thing for these communities, couldn't
5: it? Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a really interesting st- statistic, which is that um, for old coal plants that are shutting down, 75% of the skills necessary to run a coal plant are directly transferable to running a nuclear plant. And so you have, like you, you mentioned, Appalachia and, and West Virginia um, but also some places out west in Colorado and Wyoming and et cetera, you have old nucle- old coal plants that are being shut down, partly because of economic reasons, partly because of climate and pollution reasons. And there's still that infrastructure. There's still that, that skill set. There's a community built around it. And if you can transfer that community to uh, retrofitting a nuclear plant, uh, a small modular reactor on that old coal plant, 75% of those skills are transferable. So those people can can learn the extra skills and just be directly plugged in to what they've been doing for a long time, which is supporting uh, energy in their community. And that's an incredible economic boom, but also it will help with a lot of the the um, mental health and, and other problems that we're seeing in a lot of those communities that are being left behind. The final thing I'll say on that is uh, states are starting to wake up to that. West Virginia recently repealed its ban on nuclear energy. Um, uh, there's Idaho, which are building uh, new scales, reactors, you have uh, Wyoming, which is commissioned to study into retrofitting um, coal plants with nuclear energy. Um, and then I actually testified in front of the Colorado Senate a few months ago uh, in favor of a bill that was being introduced to perform a similar study in Colorado about the, the future of small modular reactors. Unfortunately, the the bill got uh, tanked by some anti-nuclear uh, Democrats in, in the Colorado uh, legislature, but I'm sure they'll reintroduce it and hopefully there'll be another opportunity to kind of show how important this is. And given the current context, it stands a better chance of passing this time.
1: Yeah. Christopher Barnard, uh, outstanding stuff today. Uh, let's get to the really important issue here though. Uh, this is a heavy topic, but there's something more important. You're half American, half Belgium. I've got a foolproof way to know which half overtakes the other half here. Um, homemade Fritz, are we going mayonnaise or ketchup?
5: Got to be ketchup.
1: Oh, so the American side wins out. Uh, that's French fries for those of you from Logan don't know <laughs> what we're talking about. These things are amazing. But over there, if you order fries, you get mayonnaise with them. They don't give you ketchup, do they? So I was really curious. Well,
5: interestingly, there's a there's a type of ketchup which actually came out of Germany, but it's very popular in the Netherlands and Belgium as well, which is called curry ketchup, which is yes. you know, like, a spicier form of ketchup, and that's the best.
1: I've got it. Uh, I got the green-topped ones, though, because that red top one's a little rough with all my GI issues. But I've got it in the cabinet. i got to get it off Amazon. I love me curry ketchup. I love to throw, a, especially, like, a bratwurst or something on a bun with curry ketchup. That's the stuff. Big fan of curry ketchup, something I brought back from Germany. Uh, Wurst is the brand, I believe. But, yeah, make sure you get the green one. The red one's got a little kick to it, uh, the red <laughs> tapped ones. But, uh Yes sir that's in my pantry right now I promise you Christopher Barnard we're going to have you back uh fantastic information love talking to you this topic is just I I especially like like we said winter's coming this is going to be a big big topic as winter rolls around let folks know where they can follow you until we get you back on Tell again your social media where you're writing and what you've got going on my friend
5: Sure so you can follow me on my Twitter uh, at chris barnard dl um so you can just see a lot of my writing will be there. Also, the organization I work for, the American Conservation Coalition. Um, you can look look us up uh, online, also on Twitter. It's ACC underscore National. Um, so a lot of our, our work will be there. And yeah, we're we're just very excited about promoting nuclear in the future, but also just broad common sense energy and climate policies that balance economic prosperity with protecting the environment. I think that's something that most Americans can get behind. So, uh yeah, check us out and uh, and support us if you want.
1: Yeah, we've had a couple folks associated with ACC on. They're always great. Uh, that old term we used to use, stewardship of the environment. It's something that's catching on in conservative circles in practical ways. Y'all do good work. We greatly appreciate it. Get into that curry ketchup, folks. It's real complicated. You take ketchup and you put curry powder in it to taste and mix. Very hard to do. Let it sit a little while. Christopher Barnard, this was great, sir. Really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk again real, real soon. Thanks, man. Yes, sir. Uh, Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we talk about overseas stuff a lot. We've been covering the UK, their policies, talking about that prime minister race in the Conservative Party. We don't always look at it from a policy and tax analysis. So we're going to turn to our friend over at the Tax Foundation, Sean Brady's joining us. He's an EU policy analyst there. He focuses on international tax issues, especially with Europe. Sean, great to have you with us. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Let's start right there. We talk about this stuff. Like tax policy is one of those things; it gets wonky. There's charts, there's math. I don't like math. There's lots of big words. Why should we pay attention to overseas tax policy when we don't even have a real good grip on American tax policy? Just to be honest about it, it's a great right?
0: question. I think the the best way to think about it is tax policies that's passed internationally uh, in other countries, while they apply to the the companies and the citizens and uh, value things that you buy in those countries, um, they also apply outside of those jurisdictions. So for example, uh, a corporate tax rate in the UK might also apply to U.S. companies that are doing business in the UK. Uh, So that's just one example, but there are many reasons why we should, we should really care about what other countries are doing in tax policy.
1: Now, especially true with the UK, this gets complicated in a hurry, but just to give the background. We understand this is a post-Brexit issue. We don't know all the issues because they're still sorting them out. They're still trying to figure out things like trade unions and what such. But this is a big deal. It changed how a lot of things were doing with the EU, with the UK, and you know it trickles down. It affects how U- U.S. policy goes as well, right?
0: Absolutely. I think one of the main points here is really to focus in on the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, this has been brought up, I'm sure your, your listeners and your viewers know very well about brexit and the good friday agreement generally but one aspect of it that uh, outgoing prime minister boris johnson has talked about recently is reneging a bit on the deal that he came up with with the eu when they left the eu talking about how northern ireland trade would be regulated talking about uh, what that might mean for a hard border Uh, and so while that's not necessarily tax policy directly. It certainly impacts uh, trade, taxes, and the economy in a way that could definitely affect U.S. companies and also the politics of the U.S. Uh, On the other side, I know that when uh, representatives from from Ireland uh, were in the United States previously over the last year, uh, House Speaker Pelosi had mentioned that she was very much still in favor of the Good Friday Agreement, and if the U.K. did anything to ruin that agreement, it would certainly affect relations between the U.S. and the U.K. So that's just something also to keep in mind.
1: Yeah. Sean Berry joining us. Let's before we dig into the UK, though, let's talk about Water Europe for just a second, because taxes to when we hear taxes, America's we we think very certain things. We think our tax refunds, we think about you know withholding, we think about our W-2s, these sorts of things. Taxes in Europe are not only different, they're done very differently. You know, like when I, I lived in Germany, I had to do my VAT book because I had vouchers because I was military. Uh, you have VAT taxes. You have a universal health care that has to be paid for. The tax system in Europe is different. So when we say taxes to a European, you've studied this, you've been over there. They're hearing almost a completely different concept in taxes than what we really think of, right?
0: Yeah, I think in Europe, the the concept of taxes is less about should the government have a role in my life, for example, in healthcare care or in transportation policy or in things that Americans might might not think about it so much as being the role of government. Uh, in Europe, those things are, are generally assumed to be the role of government. Uh, and therefore, they understand that taxes play a role in paying for those things. Uh, so, for example, in, in Scandinavian countries, they have, uh, they have a high tax rate on uh, individuals. Um, for example, in Denmark, I believe it's almost 55%, the top income tax bracket. Uh, and that applies to 1.3 times the median average the average salaries in in that country. So uh, equivalently, if you made over $82,000 in the United States, you'd be being taxed at 55% uh, of that income if you, if you lived in that country. However, they also understand that those, those tax dollars do go to benefits that they receive on the other end. And so I think Americans generally are a little more skeptical of giving so much money to the government. Uh, and that might also be because they don't necessarily see all the benefits that Europeans do on the other side.
1: Yeah, Sean Bray from the Tax Foundation joining us. Uh, Give us a big picture overview, though. Of course, the EU, based mostly out of Brussels, you have Germany, which is the economic engine that drives the EU. The UK stepped out of it. Um, The EU, the UK, America just kind of stack up their various tax policies against each other. Who do you think is getting it right? Who do you think is struggling a little bit tax policy-wise between those three?
0: So the Tax Foundation actually does a what we call the International Tax Competitive Index every year. And this ranks the competitiveness of all OECD countries' tax systems, um, including obviously the United States, the UK and Germany. Uh, and the UK actually ranked 22nd on that list um, out of 37 OECD countries. Um, and the problem wasn't necessarily their, their rates, it was more their tax base. Um, they have a lot of issues in terms of having a broad base. Which, at the Tax Foundation, we believe in pro-growth uh, tax policy, and that includes broad-based uh, tax tax policies. So, so Germany has Germany definitely has uh, a more sound tax system than the UK, for example, when it comes to uh, competitiveness, and that's reflected in their export-oriented economy. Uh, the U.S. after the 2017 uh, TCJA, the Tax Cut and Jobs Reform Act uh, that was passed under President Trump, uh, that really moved the United States up on our competitive list. So I think at this point, um, each system has its benefits, each system has its downfalls, uh, but the UK of the three probably has the most work to do at this particular moment, which is why this election in the UK is so important.
1: Like we talked about before, tax policy, you know, again, it gets wonky, it gets ideological, it gets theorized really quickly. The U.K. has some really practical built-in reasons why they would have those issues. Number one, this is going to be shocking to some folks, it's an island, so you got to, you know, everything's got it you know, just basic transportation in and out. It's just a different system than Germany, which is centrally located. Number two is, it's not really a big country population-wise, so their tax base is decently small when you compare it to other countries. When you're looking at tax policy, sometimes we just overlook kind of the bare stuff like population, like geography, right?
0: I think that's right. Um, there's, there's a good argument to be made for uh, eliminating carve-outs, specifically for, as you mentioned previously, the value ad- value-added taxes, which is a consumption tax. Uh, we actually don't have that here in the United States. It would be most similar to a sales tax. Um, but European countries all have, for the most part, a value-added tax and one of the big questions when it comes to value-added tax reform is whether they have how many carve-outs they have so for example in some countries uh, when you buy groceries uh, if you're under a certain um, policy for example in a high inflation time period some governments will pass that carve-outs and so you won't get taxed on those particular things i think the closest thing here in the united states would be uh, the going back to school tax holiday uh, where you remove the consumption tax for um, for going back to school goods. Um, so in the U.K., that's really where they should focus as well is understanding that carve-outs and therefore not having as broad of a base can be a big issue.
1: So these carve-outs, though, talking to Bray, Tax Foundation, um, these carve-outs, though, obviously, that's not only a powerful policy tool. That's a powerful political tool because you're really putting the government thumb on certain things, not always in a bad way, sometimes in a good way. But that's a lot of political power on top of being an economic indicator, also,
0: right? For sure, it is. It is certainly government intervention into the free market, if you want to look at it that way. Um, as you mentioned, there are reasons to do it. There are certain products that you can make an argument for, uh, but oftentimes governments use it as a political tool, either right before an election or during times of of high inflation that sometimes are caused by those government policies themselves. Uh, and it's important just to realize that uh vat income tax or VAT taxes is one of the most stable revenue sources for our government, so every time that you add another carve out on consumption, uh the government will have that much less of a stable revenue source to to later draw on for social spending
1: yeah, I think it's an here because i don't know if you ever taxes as a revenue stream. They just look at it as something they do. They may look at their tax check where they get their refund. Talk about, though, and explain how important that is because the government 100% looks at taxes as a revenue stream. This is something that's so important. Look, this is the very first thing they put in the Constitution after what a legis- what the legislator does, after what Congress does. The very first thing they did and the reason they had to make the constitutional system out of the Articles of Confederation was over how to tax and how to raise revenue for the government. That's what our whole system of government was based off of. Talk about just for a second, because I think this is a real basic concept. But if you're going to talk tax policy, we really need to get a good foundation in what that means, that this is a revenue stream first and foremost, right?
0: Absolutely. I think that's really when people ask me what I do for my job, they assume that I'm a CPA, which I'm not. Uh, And that's because uh, many people view taxes through, as you had mentioned previously, through an individual lens. What does it mean for me? What does it mean for my paycheck? Uh, How much money am I paying to the government? But people generally don't think about the tax system as a whole, and as you point out correctly, uh, the tax system is a revenue source, and it's all about how the government can raise revenue. Uh, This can be considered sort of a dirty word in the United States sometimes. Uh, People wonder why uh, the United States needs to have revenue. Uh, Why should the government need that anyway? Um, But in Europe, it's it's more understood that the government needs revenue, However, at Tax Foundation, there are better and worse ways to raise revenue. Uh, for example, we see that corporate tax uh, taxes on corporations is one of the least efficient ways to raise revenue for the government because it slows down investment, it slows down economic growth. And so, therefore, we we tend to rely more at the Tax Foundation on policy choices that focus on consumption taxes and other broad-based principal tax policies that can raise stable revenue even through a downturn, because that's when the government actually needs the money the most, when they're paying out in benefits during downturns.
1: Yeah, Sean Brady joining us. We're going to get into the UK in just a second, but since you just brought it up, it's on everybody's mind, so let's just go there. Uh, Words like inflation, words like recession. People don't automatically start thinking tax policy, but tax policy has a tremendous effect on these things because, again, main revenue stream. So when you start talking about fiscal policy, you got to talk about the revenue stream, just like you're balancing your budget at home, although we know the government doesn't do a great job of that. What is the role of tax policy in a debate like this? We just did the Build Back Mansion or whatever you want to call the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which we can debate whether it's going to reduce inflation or not, but this was a piece of it. How are we going to tax corporations? Tax policy in a time like this is really important, isn't it?
0: It is absolutely important. Uh, as someone from the Tax Foundation, I think we think it's always important. But for the general public and the general debate, uh, this was talked about a lot in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, as as you mentioned, Joe Manchin finally came around to supporting it, as well as Senator Sinema, uh, and the book tax in the book tax that's that a part of of this bill that just signed by the president. Um, We, in our estimation at Tax Foundation, our federal team has gone over the numbers with our modeling tools, and they show that there's minimal to no inflation reduction in the longer term. Uh, We think this is a problem for the economy generally um, because inflation hurts a lot of people in in a lot of different ways. It's basically a tax on everybody. Um, So tax policy does play a large role in this, and there are certain taxes that increase inflation and some that decrease inflation and so it's just a matter of balancing those out in certain times of inflation and also looking at the short to medium windows of of uh, a, a given policy.
1: Wow. Sean Burry join us. All right, we're going to take a quick break when we come back. We're going to get into the UK. Uh, they got a little bit of a political race going over there. Who the next prime minister is going to be? One of the top issues they're talking about in these debates and hastings. Taxes over and over again. Why we should care? Why we should pay attention to it? We'll also loop back, talk a little bit more about American tax policy. Sean Bray from the Tax Foundation joining us on Hurtel. More with him right after this. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. Uh, we're talking to our friend Sean Bray from the Tax Foundation. Uh, sharp guy has been overseas. Knows. I'm told he speaks French and Deutsch, but we're not going to test that because I've had a head injury since then and my supremacy isn't what it used to be, my friend. Um, but let's go back overseas to the UK. Uh, we've been talking about this with our UK contributors outside of the cost of living crisis, they're talking about taxes more than I can ever remember uh, politics in the UK talking about taxes. It's really kind of phenomenal to watch, especially for the conservative party. Why should an American audience pay attention to something like the UK's tax policy? We talked about it with the EU a little bit, but just break it down for us. Why is it important that one of the leaders of one of our closest allies paying attention to what their tax policies are? Yeah, I think
0: one reason that Americans should really care about what's going on in the UK at the moment in terms of tax policy, uh, is that London specifically, but the UK more broadly was always seen and, and used by American companies abroad as the gateway to the EU. Uh, now that the UK has left the EU, uh, some rearrangement has taken place. Some companies have moved from uh, from London to Dublin or to the continent of Europe, uh, but it's still, it's still a hub for American businesses Operating over in Europe, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. For example, uh, certain tax policies, the language, cultural similarities between American business and, and the UK. Uh, so there, there's a lot of reasons why uh, American companies choose the UK to do business uh, with their overseas partners in Europe. However, uh, one of the main, uh, one of the main discussions right now in this in this election race is talking about whether to change the corporate tax rate in the UK and it's currently at 19 percent and uh rishi sunak is proposing to up that to 25 by april 2023 uh liz Truss, on the other hand has said that she will not do that um, and so it's really a question of how competitive the uk business climate is going to be going forward um, which obviously directly impacts us companies um, and their investment decisions and where they locate in Europe. Uh, so there's definitely an economic impact on not only the UK, but the United States based on what their tax policies are.
1: Yeah. And a good recent headline example for the average person that doesn't keep up with economics. When the Russian sanctions of the oligarchs started, almost all of them went through London because that's where almost all of them do their banking internationally. So London and, and the e- e- UK has always kind of been that central hub, although some of it's moved to Frankfurt and other places um, let's talk about the corporate tax rate though. Compare it for a second so folks know, because I, I'm, you know, something like 60% of Americans can't name the three branches of government. I'm pretty sure most Americans probably don't know what the corporate tax rate is. So just compare it, the E, the UK tax rate to the American tax rate. What are we talking about? What's the similarities and what are the differences?
0: Yeah. So I think a good place to start actually is, uh, referring back to our, our index. Um, Actually, in the OECD average is around 23% uh, this past year. So the UK going from 19 to 25% under Richie Sunak would actually be increasing the, the corporate tax rate above even the OECD average. Uh, currently, the United States is around 21%. Uh, President Biden has talked about changing that recently, uh, but for now it's at 21%. Uh, so that would certainly put the UK at a disadvantage relative to the rest of the United States and the OECD uh, more broadly when it comes to tax competition.
1: Yeah. Um, when you hear somebody like Rishi Sunak, he was a, he was the head of the Excadur, which is you know kind of like our Treasury, although a much more powerful role. Um, he's a smart guy, Stanford educated. He knows these numbers backwards and forwards. How much of this is political and how much of this is good policy? Because they keep talking about taxes. So the appetite is there. They have the cost of living. Is the policies they're putting out matching what the country needs that's having a cost of living crisis, though?
0: Um, without being too political on my side, of course, uh, we try at the Tax Invasion just to take the numbers as they are. Um, I think that it's there are merits to both sides. However, um, in a time like this, for example, Liz Truss's plan is to to keep the rates where they are, to lower tax rates, Um, and lowering tax rates in a time of inflation is actually can have negative effects. Um, However, On the other side, for for Mr. Sunak, if you're going to raise taxes, uh, especially on corporations, that can dampen growth and dampen investment in the UK uh, from in the short to medium term. And so once inflation hopefully goes away sooner rather than later, uh, you might end up with a UK that's uncompetitive and can't draw as much investment decisions in the UK as it once would have would have done. So I think on both sides, uh, of course, these decisions are, are political, but even from an economics perspective, uh, they both have their, their benefits and negatives.
1: Yeah, Sean Bray joining us. Let's zoom back out to the EU. You've wrote about this before, the corporate income tax rates in Europe more broadly. Uh, no real surprises here. Germany's number two. France is number three. These are traditional powers, traditional large economies. They're allies of us, obviously. As this new EU post-Brexit emerges, and especially with events like with what Russia and what's going on in, UK, in the <laughs> UK, especially with Russia and what's going on in the Ukraine, does the EU itself need to review its tax policy structures both corporately and, and as a unit? Because obviously the world is kind of changing around them a little bit. Where are they at on tax policy as a combined EU? That's
0: a great question. So I think the first thing that's important to know uh, for your listeners and your viewers is that uh, the EU actually doesn't have taxing power per se; it's a member state competence. So in the United States, uh, for example, the equivalent would be if only the state governments could raise taxes, but the federal government could not. That's generally what's happening in the the EU broadly. Uh, However, um, that has been called into question recently, as you mentioned, because of the war and because of other uh, surrounding kind of geopolitical effects that are that are around the EU. So there is a push within the EU and the European Commission, especially in uh, the European Parliaments, who look at what they call own resources. So own resources is a, is a way for the, the EU to gain money for itself into the EU budget, and so instead of uh, relying on member states and their governments. Uh, For example, the French government or the German government, the EU is contemplating policies to raise its own money for the EU's purposes themselves. They already have a certain amount of what they call own resources that mostly comes from governments directly to the EU, uh, but they are looking to expand their own resources uh, to to combat some of these other issues in the world. Uh, So that's an ongoing debate in the EU that has a lot of different consequences economically and politically.
1: Yeah, it's funny you said the member states, because again, that's that's almost sounds like the article confederation, which is what brought us our current system. That was the problem. They couldn't raise enough revenue for the federal government. They didn't have power to enforce it, among other issues. But that was kind of the big one. Let's bring this back to the U.S. for a minute, though. Um, We don't. How are we talking about taxes and tax policy in America right now in the discourse? We don't really talk about it as much. I don't think we talk about it as much as we used to. Like, we don't even have politicians just say, let's lower taxes. is just a buzzword like we used to. There just doesn't seem to be the same discussion that there used to be maybe in a previous generation of politics. Is that a good or a bad sign that we don't seem to really talk about tax policy unless it's a specific piece of legislation or something like that? Am I imagining that or is that a trend?
0: It might be a trend. I'm not. A, I don't have a personal opinion per se on that. I haven't studied it too much, but I think in general, um, our politics is is divided, obviously, in, in all kinds of social ways and, and political ways. Um, I don't think taxes uh, is necessarily a a uh, an attention drawing topic for for some people. in, in our times, uh, the debate tends to be focused on the spending side of things, and of course. Taxes, nobody wants to talk about those because it's much easier to sell politically a spending program rather than a, a tax increase to pay for those spending programs. So I think when it comes to politicians and the way we, in our discourse, we talk about taxes, uh, it's it's not always the most popular thing to have to explain that we're going to be taking more of your money if, if in a tax increase or uh, it can also be very complex and very in the weeds. And I think for most people, uh, it's it's not very interesting. So especially in a political world where uh, headlines grab the attention of most people, uh, tax policy generally doesn't make it onto the front pages.
1: John Bray joining us. All right. The downside of that, of course, is um, I'm not great at math, but I do understand our fiscal house as a nation is not in particularly good shape right now. Unless we cut spending, rein in government and or something really strange happens. At some point, taxes are going to have to go up just to balance the sheets in here. Is how do we have that conversation with the average American citizen? Do you think, again, taxes and tax policy, that's one of those wonky things that you just said it. people don't really want to talk about it because it's. They don't like it. Number one and number two, it's very. We have a ridiculously complex system. How do we start having that conversation, though? Because there's also this reality bomb coming down the road that at some point the tax system that we have is insufficient to the government we have. That's just kind of a basic math problem, right?
0: Yeah, I think one way that we at Tax Foundation like to talk about taxes is in a pro-growth manner, and so our we have principal tax policy ideas that we that we have k for that we try to educate policymakers on. And all of our policy ideas really point in the direction of pro-growth uh, economic opportunity. And so I think that's a way of talking to the average person about tax policy is when you have tax, a tax system that not only generates the right around, amount of revenue for the government based on its spending bills and its spending programs, uh, but also a way that encourages innovation, encourages investment, stimulates, stimulates job creation um, I think that's something that most Americans can, can easily relate to. And I think in general, think it's a good idea. Um, I don't know of many people who would say I want a tax regime that discourages businesses from creating a jobs that I might be able to apply for in the future. So I think talking about it in ways that that really relate to the average person uh, and what it means for their family, what it means for buying food, putting it on the table. I think that's where, where policymakers should really start talking about taxes uh, in, in a layman's way.
1: Yeah, and in that vein, Sean Bray joining us. Um, how detrimental to the conversation is it when we buzzword things like, oh, corporations pay their fair share, or of course everybody wants that, but that doesn't actually mean anything when you go to write a policy. It's just kind of a buzzword. Um, tax the rich, um, deadbeats that aren't p- pulling their own weight when it comes to individuals. When you're talking about policies, though, the way we've become a buzzwordy social media debate society. That's not really helping anything, is it?
0: Not really. Uh, For example, actually in the EU, they have what's called the the fair taxation kind of approach as as we speak. Um, This has come into the debates about uh, proposals on wealth taxes, uh, talking about corporate taxes, uh, increasing them specifically on American companies, not only uh, in the just general sense, but also in the digital space, uh, talking about the tech companies that operate in Europe that are American. And so this is a this is an ongoing uh, conversation and not only in the United States, but also in Europe. And I think it's important to understand that um, many, many journalists write articles talking about, for example, how much money Amazon paid in taxes last year. Um, And a lot of times that misrepresents the actual way that taxes are are paid. Um, That's a lot of the times you have to consider, for example, in our tax code. We have incentives to invest and to buy machinery and to build factories. Uh, and we give tax credits for those things to businesses. So usually journalists tend not to focus on those and they rather focus on the, the top rate, which can be lowered based on incentives that our tax code gives companies to invest rather than pay taxes directly to the government. So I think it's, it's important to ha- always have a context when you're talking about tax policy and rates and effective rates, um, especially when we talk about corporations and their fair share or, or wealthy individuals and things like that. It's not to say that people shouldn't pay their fair share and they shouldn't do what the law requires them to do. But I think it's important just to understand that there are ways of reducing your tax bill overall uh, that, that are productive for the economy and that are encouraged by our tax code legally.
1: Yeah. Let's round this up with a little practical application. There's people are scared because the economy is a little uncertain right now. Um, It may not be as bad as some people think it's bad for some people, but not others, which is part of the problem. And while we have weird economic numbers, like you know, (laughs) labor shortages and low unemployment at the same time. You know, people are confused and that makes them a little scared sometimes. What's a practical way, something they should be watching for either in the media or in government reporting when it comes to their taxes that they should be actually watching out for? Turn the noise down for us a little bit. What's something in a government policy? Maybe it's something in the Inflation Reduction Act. Maybe it's something that's policy wise coming up. It is an election year, so people are talking about lots of policies. What's something people should be really paying attention to and watching for for those sakes going forward here in the next near future?
0: I think one of the most important things that, that the average person can watch for that doesn't necessarily apply to them directly in, in terms of income taxes, but something that's been talked about a lot uh, is how we treat uh, investment decisions. And how we tax those those uh, decisions. One policy that I think everyone should be watching out for, especially in an election year, is how they will treat full expensing in the tax code. And full expensing is really a really a good tax policy for pro growth. Uh, it's principled. It allows businesses to recoup a lot of the the tax money on their investments. That stimulate jobs. That stimulate economic activity, and generally do do much better for the economy. So I think that's something that. Uh, that's been tossed around a lot in, in these discussions with Build Back Better and now the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, the president and and Republicans have been going back and forth about how to treat full expensing and the tax code going forward. And so I think that's really important because full expensing is a good way to to stimulate growth, stimulate the economy, create jobs, um, and is very efficient in that sense.
1: Yeah, Sean Bright Tax Foundation. Great stuff today. Appreciate your time. Let folks know where they can follow you and what you got going on until we see you again.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I'm not on social media, but I but on our Tax Foundation website, we have an EU landing page, which actually uh, includes all of our EU material. Uh, that's where you'll find most of my publications, and I look forward to coming back uh, whenever you'll have me.
1: Yep, we threw a lot of hard questions at it. And you answered them so well that even I understood most of it. There's a couple things in there I'm going to have to go Google. I'm not going to lie. Some of the policy stuff. But we will link to all of this in the show notes, including his writing. Make sure you read it all in full. Uh, Sean Bray, Tax Foundation. Thank you so much for the time, sir. I appreciate it. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we've been talking about this for a while. We're probably going to continue to talk about it because obviously nothing legislatively is going to be done about it. That means we may be looking back at White House action. Meanwhile, colleges are back in session. Most of them started this week. So let's talk a little bit about student loan debt. Uh, Flavia Nunez, Young Voices contributor. She's up at UNC Chapel Hill, but for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against her. Uh, Thrilled to have you with us, ma'am. How are you?
2: I'm good. How are you, Andrew?
1: Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Um, I think there's some generation gap on this. Let's start with this because you're a college student. So you're right in that pocket. You just started school this week. Um, I got to do this with one of my kids. They just started college this week. What's the current generation of college students think about this? Because we're all looking at it as the national narrative. So before we get into the specifics of the student loan debt problem, you're the new generation of college students. What do they think about it? What are they discussing it? Are they discussing it at all?
2: That's an interesting question because I do think it depends on the college student. A lot of high school students, at least seniors, are worried a lot about getting into the private schools, the elite schools, and really the price tag that's that's tuition, room and board. Not a lot of seniors truly think about that until they're admitted. So really it's just about um, trying to work, these four years of high school, trying to work, trying to build a resume, do good in school, Really devote yourself to your extracurriculars to try to get into college. But really, this conversation isn't had, isn't done until probably a month before you have to commit to that college itself. So, a lot of kids are really, I wouldn't say blindsided because it isn't hidden necessarily, but they are left in this zone where they don't really know what to do, whether they should take on the debt for their quote unquote dream school, or whether they should just um, go to another school that's still good, but isn't really what they wanted. So I feel a lot of college students are also, when they get to school, there's a split between those who, who depend on their parents to pay, or who really think it's their parents' responsibility, and those who are determined not to make it their parents' responsibility. And those are two very different philosophies uh, it really depends on the student that you see. There's a lot of students that work campus jobs as well to try to make it a little bit better. A lot of students, because loans are really because yearly co- tuition prices range from let's say 15,000 to 50,000, uh, a lot of students take on loans themselves that they will have to start paying off after they graduate. And so their mentality is also, let me make the most of this experience. But really, as I said, it really depends.
1: Is that the core of this debate's problem? Because we want to talk about it in news narrative clips and buzzwords and, you know, uh, erase student debt or forgive student debt. Those are all slogans. This is a really complicated issue, though, because, like, incoming undergrad students, that's one subset of people. Then you have the graduate level. Then you have the postgraduate level, which is, you know, progressively more expensive and more, you know, specialized down, if you will, smaller and smaller groups of people. This has a lot of different categories under student loan debt. But we're always talking about it as if it's like a one size fits all problem that's going to have a one size fits all solution. And that's just not the case. is it?
2: No, it definitely isn't. I was just talking about really undergraduate. Um, post-secondary education uh, when I refer to the high school seniors. But yes, you have graduate school in all forms. You have law school, med school. It really is a broad problem, and it is definitely not a one-size-fits-all. I mean, right now, the the narrative, the national narrative, as you said, is, is really um, focused on, I want to say, millennials and those who started college, perhaps, in the 2000s or 2010s, who are now really, um, not starting the workforce, but not really that far into it, and are just worried about how they're going to pay for a house, how they're going to pay for a car, how they're going to start a family. They're really set back because they have such an early debt. I mean, if you, uh, if debt every um, every time the debt to income ratio increases by one percent, consumption decreases by three point seven approximately. So you have this this negative, snowballing economic effect, whereby potentially the GDP suffers as well. So this is a problem that really right now is affecting one generation, but will most nearly affect mine as well, especially since college prices increase astronomically every single year.
1: Yeah, and we're going to get into those numbers with you in a minute, according to the piece you wrote at Chalkboard Review as well. But I have to ask you, because you're talking about generations And you're of this generation, so maybe a lot of people haven't heard from your generation about this. You're going to be forever tagged as the COVID generation. You went through the school lockdowns. I'm talking broadly here. Y'all went through the school lockdowns. You went through remote school. How's that going to affect things? Because now you've got a whole generation of kids that are used to remote schools. Maybe they start looking at college expenses and go, hey, I did high school remote. Why can't I do more online college and do more hybrid stuff and maybe try to get my costs down? Or maybe they're looking at it as, no, I hated that model. I really want to go to school. And they take on that little bit of extra debt because they didn't like it. How much do you think COVID and the generation that went through that, that is now entering college or into their first or second year of college, how's that going to affect this debate, do you think?
2: I think, honestly, from my personal experience and speaking to other college students my age, it's this, like, feeling of wanting to get out after so many years in your room doing school, you really lack that necessary social interaction that a lot of high school students depend on, let's go to after school to this um, ice cream store or let's hang out or let's have this party. A lot of people miss that connection. And when people think of college, they mostly, they think of the academic component how well the professors are, the class to the the professor to student ratio. But a lot of the time they're also a big, big factor is sports and social life. Um, especially for the university that if I'm in, school spirit is a big, big thing. And so are parties. And I feel like that's almost a focus. You after so long indoors, young people just wanna get out. And college, I feel, um sort of referring to your question, yes, that makes I it I believe that that makes people even more willing to take on that extra debt because they think that it will pay off in not just the long run but the short run again this is really a decision that's made for high school students in relative terms about a month so you get accepted and get your financial aid package about a week after if not immediately after you get accepted and after that you have approximately a month to decide whether to accept to pay that amount of money. And a lot of the time you don't really think it through, especially at 18, you don't have, you don't have all of your cards in order, all the chess pieces on the table. You don't really know if you're going to finish that degree. I mean, 38% of students um, or borrowers who were students at one point did not finish their degree. So what they worked for, they didn't really gain the positive effects of it. So there you you start life with debt and not with necessarily the things that you expect a college degree to give you, like a higher paying job, more stability in life. So, yeah, I feel like COVID does really change the mindset of of my generation. We really want to go to college, not just to learn, um, though we sometimes some of us prefer online classes because of their easier nature. We go to college to interact with others our age.
1: Fabian is joining us. Um, you just mentioned it. So let's just go there. Um, there's no ducking that this is a business model for a lot of people, including the schools, including others. That debt you're taking on, you talked about that narrow window from the time you do your FAFSA, you get your acceptance letter, you've got a very small window to decide whether you're going to do debt or not. And there's a tremendous amount of pressure because now you've gotten in, are you going to go, that sort of thing. These are. This is an age group. Um, you're taking on debt. They would not give you a car loan at that age with your background. They're not going to give you a house loan. They're not going to give you probably any loan of any kind. And yet you're allowed to take out student loan debt. People accuse it. I've used this terminology, too, that because the entire K-12 system is designed to be a funnel to higher education in America now, this seems very, very predatory. Is there any other way to describe that, especially when you start talking about the realities of that narrow window where the kids have to decide that, considering this is the only kind of loan of this version that they would be allowed to get legally, and yet we let uh, student loans for these young people go, it feels predatory, it looks predatory, and then when you start looking backwards through the student loan debt crisis, it really doesn't seem fair to the kids or anybody else. Am I missing anything there, or is that a fair way to adjust that?
2: I mean, I do believe that that's a word that can be used, because a lot of students... Like I said, they're seventeen, they're eighteen. But they, when they think college, they think, oh my God, I'm gonna have be free. I'm uh, not really gonna have pressure from my parents anymore. I'm gonna have a lot of this independence. And there's also this this ranking list and the the idea of prestige, and how much prestige counts for. So there is a lot of pressure, most definitely. I mean, there's also pressure from from family figures as well because the FAFSA and um the other financial aid applications cost money in and of themselves i mean personally i paid close to a thousand dollars in financial aid applications so almost when you get back your financial aid offer and it is not as much as you were expecting or little as is willing for you to be able to pay that amount you kind of are stuck in a zone where you don't know what to do because you've already invested the time in applying But also know that with that amount of financial aid, you're not really going to get, for the FAFSA itself, there's a lot of, there are two kinds of aid that you can get. Grants that you don't have to pay back and loans that you do. Grants are the best kinds of scholarships because it's essentially, um, counselors call it free money. It's a scholarship money that you're given to just study. But loans, you do have to pay back. Uh, sometimes, even though they're subsidized, it is difficult. And when you're just starting, when you're when you're expected to pay when you graduate, when you're just starting life, you you find difficulty not just looking for a job, but looking for a living situation. It is, I would say, to a certain level, a business model that has worked in the past. Usually, um, a couple of years ago, I don't remember the exact date. But admission cycles would be much earlier in the year. And so students had a much broader window for to see their financial aid offer and call the financial aid office and appeal for a new decision. There used to be a broader window, but that isn't really, as you can tell, as profitable for colleges. So that window was moved to this month long um, process for me personally. I did appeal um, a couple financial decisions, but uh, sometimes it's not even the financial aid officers who are at fault because they are truly trying to help you. But a lot of it is just equations that are that are stuck. So you, you, your family makes a certain amount of money. This is a certain amount of aid you're going to get, no matter where that money is inputted or exactly how financially able you are to pay for that money. I think the root of the problem really is the large amount of money that college costs these days. I mean, it's an amount that is so large for an intangible object. I don't really think that there is anything that costs as much because at least for housing, um, I mean, a house costs an exorbitant amount of money, but it's a physical property that you're going to get. You know exactly what's going to happen right off the bat education, it's an investment in your mind, in yourself, but you never really know how that's going to turn out.
1: Yeah, Flavia Nunez is joining us. This is why I wanted to discuss this before we get into the numbers and break that down, because that's the part everybody focuses on. They don't focus on the people problem aspect of this. So everything we just said, talking about it being somewhat predatory, talking about the business model contracting it down, there's more and more money, there's more and more pressure to get more money, that shrinks the windows, everything you just said. One of the largest vocal critics of student loan debt forgiveness is the folks that say, well, it's personal responsibility. Nobody made you sign the loan. I understand that. I agree with that in principle. But how do you put a human face on that, too? Because like we said, this is an age group that wouldn't get a loan for anything other than this. Where do you balance that out? Because, yes, you have personal responsibility, but this isn't happening in a vacuum. This is happening in a sequence of events where there's a lot of pressure put on these very young people to take on this debt. What do you think the ratio of personal responsibility to the system is here?
2: I feel, yes, there is some level of personal responsibility because nobody is ever pointing a gun at your head saying, take on this loan or else. Um, So it is your um, decision and you are technically an adult because most people take on this loan at 18. Some people are not. Some people take on this loan at 17 or some people go to college at 16. But at the same time, you are making this decision when your frontal lobe isn't really developed yet either. Um, so I mean, you can't drink until you're 21, and yet you can take on hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt that will affect your life starting at this young age. So I feel like personal responsibility is definitely a factor. But it, like you said, it is this. Some there's definitely somebody taking advantage here in a way that we've seen throughout history. I mean, there's always going to be somebody who pays for a service. And uh, in this case, the service is one that a lot of students don't really know. I mean, what you when you're 18, what you've lived is barely anything at all. You don't really know what it is to be an adult yet. You've lived with your parents or, or, or parental figures. And so you're off in a new place um, worrying about, a thing, doing your laundry for the first time or doing the dishes, maybe not for the first time, but definitely on your own. And just, you don't really realize like how much money it is to take on at such a young age and how much time you'll be paying it back. And so you depend on other people a lot of the time to tell you what to do because you respect older figures. So, um, It really depends on the people also that you're surrounded with. Responsibility also lies on them. So I feel like for those who are saying that it is, uh, I guess, it is the fault of whoever signed the loan, I understand. But at the same time, it's the influence around that person and the institutions who have this model going forward.
1: How much does that um, ratio change when you start talking about a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old that age group that's going to do grad school or post-grad school or doctorate work, things like that, does that calculus start to change a little bit as you get more older? Like you said, those are younger people. These are people that are more established in the world, know a little bit more. They've gone through the undergrad process, so they know the machinery of it You know, because college is a machine. You're a cog in it. That's just what it is. Does that calculus change for those folks because they're the ones – ability and a little bit more platform, a little bit more noise to make noise about things like student loan forgiveness that we hear from more often.
2: Yeah, most definitely. I feel like for undergraduate, there's a lot of more options if you don't want to take on debt. Um, There are a lot of uh, community colleges available. There are a lot of, um, well, not a lot, but there are some scholarships specifically for undergraduate students who are not financially able to pay. And some scholarships that are just fully merit-based. Um, there there's a lot more leeway for undergrads than there are for graduate students, I feel. And while some undergrad graduate students have their debt paid for by the employers they're going to work with if they work with them after a certain time, a lot of graduate students, I feel, are left with no choice. They really do have to take on this loan, um, or if not, they won't be able to do the things that they necessarily want to do: uh, be a researcher, work in academia, become a lawyer, become a doctor. But the logic behind that is that the that it's much it's a much bigger debt to take on graduate school because it's a much bigger degree. Uh, um, it gives you a lot more uh, credibility in your area, and uh, it's definitely what right now some lawmakers are trying to limit. Um, It's this, uh, I forgot the name, but the abbreviation is real. And it's this act put forward by congressional lawmakers that most likely will not be passed because it is conservative in nature at this moment. But it limits grad student loans because that is such a big portion of the $1.7 trillion that we are currently facing today.
1: Yeah, Flavia Nunez joining us. We're going to get into those numbers like she just mentioned. She's got a great piece about why the pause in student debt won't fix the problem. We're also going to talk about the pause is coming off from the COVID age and the abatements. That's all coming to an end. What that means? More with Flavia Nunez right after this on Her Tech. Welcome back to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. That's Flavia. We're talking student loan uh, debt forgiveness, but also how that debt comes, trying to put a human face on it, not just talking the numbers of it. You've got a great piece up about at the Chalkboard Review about pausing student debt won't fix the problem. We understand during the COVID age, um, they pause student debt. Right now, the official listing for how much student debt is over 90 days is only at 5%, but that's a false number. And it's a false number because they paused everything. That pause is getting ready to come off. The COVID era funding is getting ready to come off. Practically speaking, what is that going to mean? Come,
2: So right now, um, Biden uh, has promised to announce a permanent solution for uh, this 1.7 trillion dollar problem. So because the student pause has been, it started during the Trump administration, it's been Uh, extended seven times for over two years. So as it's set to end this August, there's a lot of pressure on the White House to make a definite statement about student loan cancellation, which they ran on during the elections. So his plan right now is to cancel $10,000 per every eligible uh, borrower. When I mean plan, I mean this is what has been discussed, what has been hinted at, but nothing has officially been said, he wants to cancel $10,000 per eligible borrower, which is anybody making, I believe, less than $150,000 a year. When that happens, there's, as you can guess, a lot of contention, whether this is a good idea or a bad mistake. But at the same time, it this idea lacks support from both sides of the aisle, Cancellation on a broad scale is not really seen as acceptable by the right and is not really enough. $10,000 is not enough for the left to be able, they believe, to make everybody who has student loan debt uh, stand on an equitable basis. So I feel as if the decisions right now at a standstill, Biden promised to have answers by April, but that That didn't necessarily happen. He promises to have answers by August. That could or could not happen. If it does, the education department has already a plan in place. Uh, Leaked documents show that they have plans to expand borrower defense to repayment um, and really streamline the process of broad cancellation for more and more students. What that means is we can't really necessarily say or know, but taxpayers will be taking the brunt of it as this, these loans are funneled through taxpayer dollars that are expected to be repaid to the government. And when they're no longer repaid, it's just the people that foot the bill are not ones who have a say in the game.
1: And the pressure on them, because let's be adults here. We understand what's going on. We've talked about the postgraduate debt being kind of a separate beast from the undergrad debt. That class of folks, predominantly, we don't want to get too much pressure. But predominantly, it's going to be a different class of people than some of the undergrads that are taking on debt. These are people that have more influence. These are people that are more established in their careers, probably. They're probably in a little bit different social standings. That affects this, right? Because one of the criticisms of wide student loan debt uh, is what you talked about earlier. The postgraduate debt is a different beast than the undergraduate debt. It's a different group of people who is a But that's also the group that's got, you know, the political power and the social media platforming and the media platforming, because let's be honest, the media, almost all of them are um, college graduates and that sort of thing. Is that where this pressure is really coming from or is it more organic than that?
2: No, most definitely. I feel like it would be a little naive to think that those who are pushing forward, who are making a student debt cancellation, a broader topic, a broader point of discussion, don't have a personal say in the game it is very likely that those who want student debt to be canceled have a lot of student debt themselves, and very likely that those who don't want student debt to be canceled do not have a lot of their own. Um, So while you could stand on each topic as, like, let's say, a political view or an ideological view, like you're just against um, having the government play a broader role, and so because you lean typically conservative, or you just want better welfare, because you lean typically left, there is, I feel, as with a lot of things, but especially with the student debt crisis, a personal uh, reason to be involved. Because if you fight on, let's say, if you really expand this topic on and, and have a large voice, a large journalistic voice on social media or in the media itself, and are able to reach more people or reach lawmakers or influence the biden administration in any way you have the you stand to gain a lot in terms of how much let's say student debt you will not have anymore after that moment and there's a lot of you you lose you're going to lose hard or you're going to gain a lot it could be an organic thing because 1.7 trillion dollars is not something that can be ignored in any capacity, but I do feel like there is a lot of personal motivation in the conversation.
1: been talking mostly we and i did it on purpose we wanted to start with the personal side of this because this gets real buzzwordy real gets real sloganistic but you and in your piece we're linking to it as always please read the piece in its full chalkboard review we've got the links in the show notes um we've got to deal with the root cause which is about as impersonal as you get the institutional structure of how all this is designed and you touched on it in your piece the root problem with the student loan crisis is also the root problem with education, higher education in general. The astronomical cost of uh, college is f- four times easily more expensive than it was 50 years ago. It's mostly administrative cost, infrastructure cost, those kind of costs that are driving this charge. That's the root cause. Is there anything at all to be done about that? Because as long as that beast needs fed, they're going to be looking at student loans and the financial system as the way to do it, right?
2: Oh, no, for sure. I mean, if student loans are canceled and you set a precedent uh, for that kind of cancellation, then and they're promptly offered with less requirements, then colleges will only have an incentive to raise prices more because they realize that loans are more available to students and students are more likely to take them on with the expectation that they will be canceled. So these astronomical costs of college really started after 1978. After the middle, the middle Income Student Assistance Act of 1978, they, um, it made subsidized student loans much more broader. They, it, it, it made them much more available to other students. And so you saw this astronomical rise in prices simply because, again, colleges will still have consumers willing to pay for it because now they have this money available to them that is easily accessible, even though that money isn't technically their own. So these astronomical costs of college are, um, now that I I started college, I didn't really understand before. I don't think you really can until you sit in the classroom and realize, okay, my tuition doesn't cover this class, it covers um, campus health. It covers uh, how much mental health services on campus. It covers all the recreational services, the gym, the conference rooms, the libraries. And this question I mean this is just a theory of where the money is going we don't really know because institutions are not required to disclose that information this aspect this theory that the money is mainly going to campus recreational activities um it means that it's time for perhaps campuses colleges and even lawmakers to start evaluating whether it's necessary or whether it's it's right to charge such a large amount of number for these facilities for students who just want to go to college for the academic component. Again, there's another theory about why costs have risen so much, and that's that colleges depend on a high-wage labor um, model, and that could very well be the case too, but we don't really know how much deans or, or chancellors or professors are paid because it's not required for them to disclose that information. Um, I'm not proposing that this is a solution, but these are just many different factors that should also be included in the conversation because I feel like the student debt crisis is really mainly focused and a lot of the blame is placed on the students that take on the debt and the federal government that gives out the debt, but hardly none of it is ever put on institutional accountability. It's people take college prices and and, and these $50,000, $80,000 price tickets as something normal when that should really be reevaluated.
1: Uh Flavia Nunez joining us from Young Voices. Let's be honest here. The deans and the presidents and the department heads, they're not missing any meals, whatever their salaries are. They're doing okay. We know what the football coaches are making, especially at the state schools. We know what the university presidents are making for the most part because that's a competitive thing and they tend to go around place to place. They're making bank. Is there going to be a place to kind of loop this back where we started with the personal? On a practical level, as adults, just grown folk talk here, we understand this system is not going to change until something seismic happens, where the money flow gets cut off. That means people either stop going or stop taking out the loans. Is there anything on the horizon that's going to shake the system up? Because there's been lots of punditry about, you know, there's a higher education bubble, like this isn't sustainable forever. At some point, you know, trees don't go to a sky. They can't keep making this more and more expensive. The problem with that is if you have something like that, a lot of people are going to get hurt, and it's probably not those administrators that make a whole lot of money. It's probably the lower level professors and the students that's going to eat that cost, and they're the ones that's going to get hurt on it. But do you see anything like that coming on the horizon when you look at these numbers, or is this just the way the system is going to be for the next 5, 10, 20 years?
2: I feel like what you're talking about, how students and lower professors are going to take the brunt of, of whatever happens, whatever negative effects happen in the future, whether it's that the problem grows bigger and college tuition prices uh, rise to even greater amounts, or whether it's the opposite, whether college tuition prices um, lower for whatever reason, whether it's public backlash or or through the lawmaking process, whatever happens, you are completely right. I do not feel like the higher-ups at the college at institutions will receive the the brunt of the negative effects. I do feel, however, that um, they will not... A lot of it is put, like, they their jobs are to make their institutions seem as great as they can be. And I feel like while they won't necessarily be forced to give up their salaries or to take on any action because they the, the system that they have going works for them or is comfortable, there will be a time where this prestige will turn from a positive connotation, as it does now. I mean, the, the richest parents want their, their children to go to these elite colleges. Um, the celebrity parents, there was this um, the, the crisis at the University of Southern California, where parents paid exorbitant amounts of money in order to fake that their students were on sports teams in order to get them into colleges. I mean, people pay a lot of money and risk a lot on this idea of prestige. And I do feel like this word that is so good and that colleges strive to achieve, it will go in a very negative light in the coming years because people will start associating prestige with with corruption perhaps, um, with the idea that it's it's not a true meritocracy because it's limited to not just the people who can get in, but the people who can pay for that. Um, I in the coming horizon perhaps not the next five years but by the time my children are born or my children go to college there that it's not going to be as it is now it's impossible 1.7 trillion even with cancellation will only grow especially with cancellation if that is the the path that the white house decides to take it's just unavoidable organically like you said it's a problem that only has an exponential trajectory, whether it's it gets worse or if action is done now and it gets better. This the education system right now is a broken bone and cancellation is just a band-aid, really. You have to set the bone right now. It's up to right now, the like the generation that you said, those who are taking on graduate loans, who are who have a voice in the media right now. It's on them also to bring attention to this and to provide more permanent solutions that lie beyond their personal say in the matter. At the same time, I don't feel like that's going to happen anytime soon.
1: Yeah, I'm concerned as well. Uh, Flavia Nunez, let's end it on this, though. This is a complicated policy problem. It's a hot button political issue. How do we keep the people focused on it, that personal face on it, when people are just talking about this on their social media and debating it with with people, not the media, just us, you know, regular people? How can they change how they talk about this issue on their social media and when they're discussing and debating with folks to maybe push this forward and kind of get away from that buzzwordy stuff of, oh, they took on the dead, they deserve it, or we should forgive it you heartless people why wouldn't you forgive debt this is you know awful that kind of stuff that's not really helping anything other than just making it louder how should they be talking about this issue do you think
2: i feel like right now um as it's natural for this generation they're focused on the immediate repercussions so personal effects on personal loan debt for each individual borrower let's say what is what i don't see a lot in the media is the broader picture what this is going to look like in five years, 10 years, 15, 50. Uh, This is a bubble, as you say, and it's going to pop eventually. But that's not what the media is focused on right now with the people who have, um, like the debate right now is on cancellation when it should really be about the root of the problem, which is the cost itself. I do feel like it is necessary for the conversation to change in that aspect for you to be able to say, okay, well, it is true that this is a problem right now, but how can I make sure that it doesn't become a bigger problem later?
1: Flavia Nunez, she's one of only 12 Bezos scholars in the United States. She's a Moorhead Cain scholar at UNC Chapel Hill. Uh, I was giving it a little hard time earlier because I've been in North Carolina a long time, so I like to give them a hard time. It's an excellent school. It's very prestigious. Well done on that. Let folks know where they can follow you and keep track with what you've got coming next until we get you back on Tell again, my friend.
2: Thank you so, so much for this opportunity. I had so much fun. I I love talking about this. So right now I don't have a Twitter, which is a mistake of mine. Probably a
1: smart thing. That's not a bad thing.
2: Good, good. Um, uh, My LinkedIn is Flavia Nunez. You can follow me there.
1: Yeah, and you can check her out on the Young Voices page, on the talent page. She's got a lot of stuff going. We're expecting big things from her in the future. Flavia Nunez, really great job on this. Appreciate it. We'll talk again soon, my friend. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you so much, Andrew. What a great mo- way to spend the morning.
1: Oh, thank you very much. We'll talk soon. Take care, ma'am.
2: You too. Bye.
1: All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from Monstercat.com.
0: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger